the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Oxford Dictionary defines conspiracy as a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. So unless DB acted totally alone, there is absolutely a conspiracy going on here. The last panel we did was the science panel, and well, we've heard enough from those squares, time to hear for some dudes with truly open minds. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by my good friends, Nikki Broughton and the mayor himself, Bruce Smith. All right, well, let's get this party started. What I wanted to start off with was uh, something we kind of touched on a little bit, but E. Howard Hunt, he sort of came into this as a suspect where I was like, it seems ridiculous, but the more and more I look at it, the more he becomes a viable suspect. What do you guys think? I think when I first thought it was like, I just rolled my eyeballs um, when uh, the, the, so it's not LaFolk is his name. Who wrote the book? Yes. What's the What's the title mm-hmm. of the That's book? That's his pen name. Oh, it's his pen name. Uh, D.B. Cooper Exposed, I believe. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, for those who are listening to this podcast, um, and if you're not 70 years old like I am, you may not know who E. Howard Hunt is, but Howard Hunt is one of the Watergate guys back in the Nixon era and all of that. And uh, he was always a shady character, and all the Watergate guys were shady characters, and it just seemed too far out on the limb to be able to embrace right off the bat. But the more that I think about it, and as I read Nat's book, to the degree that I read it, some of the chapters I turned the pages pretty quickly. Um, but the fact that he, that Howard Hunt is known to have pulled off other rogue operations for the CIA, such as breaking into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to retrieve the Pentagon papers or um, Daniel Ellsberg is the Pentagon guy who leaked those that information to the New York Times and really tore open the whole uh, Nixon presidency and really really began to set up the whole uh, house of cards that collapsed in in the whole Watergate scandal. So this is a, was a momentous political operation, and Howard Hunt was at the center of it to try to counter uh, Daniel Ellsberg. So the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, if it was a rogue operation to transform airline safety in some manner by federalizing it, uh, Howard Hunt becomes increasingly more possible as as db cooper um and 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 as we said earlier 
uh, Nat's discussion of how the sketches were generated and what Tina Mucklow thought of the second sketch that was developed. I thought it was only four or five months later, but uh, Nat saying that it was a full year later. Um, I wasn't aware of that. So Nat's, Nat's analysis is very substantive. Uh, analysis of the sketch work is very substantive and uh, compelling uh, to review. And it definitely puts E. Howard Hunt front and center in the whole conspiratorial, um, you know, the podium of the many, many people that conspiracies place as potential D.B. Cooper suspects. Yeah, he definitely had the skills to, to pull it off, too. Yeah, yeah, for me, the number one issue in terms of skulls, skill sets is not necessarily whether the guy, the guy is a smoke jumper or a commando or anything like that. It's how big is, are his cojones. Uh, and Howard Hunt definitely had big ones. So That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I- everything about D.B. Cooper, to me, suggests a hardcore, tough guy who isn't afraid of jumping out of a plane in the rain, in the dark, in November, over the woods, and he's not exactly sure where he is. That takes a lot of cojones. And I don't think any, and, and I don't think he did as, as a fool. I don't think it was a suicide jump. I don't think he acted as a fool. Uh, this seems to, the majority of, of the known facts of the D.B. Cooper skyjacking suggests that D.B. Cooper had a good plan. And in fact, the guys who do these kinds of things, when you talk to the special ops guys, when you talk to the, to the SOG troopers, special operations group of the uh, Material Assistance Command in Vietnam, um, they're absolutely convinced that D.B. Cooper was one of them. As one guy told me, he says, you know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And if I were due to jump, I would have done it the same way. Yeah, I think uh, I think as far as planning planning goes, uh, you know, I agree with you, Bruce. This thing was very well thought out and planned. And um, as as far as as far as planning, uh, I don't think you can uh, get any better uh, than Ian Howard Hunt. Um, he's planned things on this, you know, on this type on this level. Yep. And and. Um, I don't think you can get any better as far as far as planning goes uh, than him as a suspect. Um, I did find it interesting how how Nat pointed out the timing of the second sketch when he became a public figure. Thought that was I thought that was interesting. Um, like you touched on, Bruce, he definitely would have had the cojones to do this thing. Something that hasn't been mentioned is he's he has a history of planning things on holiday weekends. So that that fits. I like that. That's right. And 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 also also the fact that he uh, he dons the glasses indoors. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's that one picture, that one picture of him in, uh, in court, I think, for the for the Watergate hearings. And he's, he's got the sunglasses on indoors. So that's that's another thing that that fits there. So I think E. Howard Hunt is definitely a viable suspect, uh, in my opinion. And he had the resources to cover it up too. And he yeah. had all the connections and resources to cover yeah. it up. Absolutely there. Right. Right. It would just take one phone call. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or maybe maybe one maybe one meeting. Maybe that's what uh Najib Halibi was doing with President Nixon three hours earlier. Maybe. That is so interesting, the Najib Halibi thing. 
Yes. Meeting with Nixon right before the skyjacking, and then he goes on a world tour selling airport security. That's if you want to talk about uh, if you want to talk about uh, 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 who benefited the most from this. It probably was Najib Halabi. Yeah, the people who built all all the metal detectors and yada yada yada, and and did all the contracts for him. That was that was Najib that was Najib Halabi after he got after he got. Uh, Fired uh, from from Pan Am. Um, that's shortly after the DB Cooper caper. That's right. What he went into, and when you when you consider Najib Halabi was the leading proponent for the Boeing SST project, which was canceled about eight months prior to Norjack, um, and and the particles on the tie, which I've been able to make some connections to to the SST. It's it's very, it's very interesting for sure. Can we back up just briefly and remind me exactly who Najib Halabi is? Was he's the CEO of Pan Am? So uh, Najib, he he actually um, he was the at the time of the Cooper hijacking, he was this uh, I believe he was the CEO of Pan American Airlines. Uh, before that, he was the director of the FFA, uh, FAA uh, from I believe sixty one to sixty five, uh, uh, appointed by President John F. Kennedy. Oh, okay. And he actually, if he wasn't meeting, if if he wasn't meeting with Nixon three hours prior to the hijacking, I'd say, hey, man, um, he's a viable suspect in his own right. Um, he uh, he look he looks he looks just a lot like the sketch. Um, his the the hair part is right. He's got the wavy marshaled hair. Um, he's from a, a, a Syrian Syrian descent, um, which they're known to have that uh, Mediterranean olive complexion. He was a te- he was a test pilot. I mean, the, he did the first transcontinental flight. Um, so the guy the guy was an aviation uh, aviation wizard. Um, you know, if he wasn't meeting with President Nixon, I'd be looking strongly at him. And I still consider the fact that hey, maybe maybe somehow that. He wasn't really meeting with President Nixon, and that and that was his uh, that was kind of conjured up to give him an alibi. Um, he he wrote a book, and in, in his book, uh, he mentions two skyjackings. Uh, he but neither he didn't mention the neither of them were the DB Cooper skyjacking, and he never mentioned in his book meeting with President Nixon that day, which I found interesting. You know a lot about this guy. You know more than I do. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, are you writing about it or posting about it? You should you should be telling us more about this guy. We should be looking into him. Yeah, I know. I, I I have I have been I've been I've been keeping a little bit close to the vest, but uh, um, I, I think I think Najib Halabi was could have could have very well been the, the the spearhead of this whole operation. I mean, when when you talk about when you talk about mo- when you talk about motive, and then when you talk when you talk about motive, he definitely had it. Um, he benefited so much from from the from all the security equipment that he ended up selling. And then when you look about the grudge aspect, he definitely had the grudge. He, like I said, he was the lead proponent of the Boeing SST project. Uh, he, he fought for that thing tooth and nail. He had a lot of he had a lot of opposition from uh, from that, but that was his that was his baby. And that and that got as you know that got canceled uh, by Nixon uh, eight months prior to Norjack. So he was, I'm sure he was definitely salty about that. 
and he was looking to pivot to something else. And it just the DB Cooper thing just was a big just a big benefit to him. It's 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 too coincidental for me. Um, I think I think this I think Jeep Halliby is is a strong person of interest here. Definitely, definitely. Follow the money. Have you read his book, Nikki? What's the book that he wrote? Um, I don't know the I don't know the name of the book uh, offhand. Okay. But uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll 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 email you the great. I'll email you the information on that first. Great, great. great. Najib Halabi's book. I got to get that. Yeah, really. Yeah, I I found it really interesting. That I mean, he he talked about a couple skyjackings in a uh, couple of skyjackings in there, but didn't didn't mention the didn't mention the DB Cooper, um, and didn't mention that he was meeting with with Nixon three hours prior. So I'm like, well, you think you'd mention that? That'd be, you know, that'd be kind of, you know, that'd be a cool, interesting tidbit to kind of, to kind of bring up, you know, especially when you was talking about hijackings. But uh, no, no, uh, no mention of it. The book is called Crosswinds: An Airman's Memoir, Najib E. Halaby. There you go. Thanks, Darren. And it is not cheap. Uh oh. <laughs> well, my twelve hundred bucks is coming in from Trump, so you know, hey. <laughs> yeah, we got that. Uh, we got that stimulus check coming. So, yeah, that's I mean, true. I guess I can afford a twenty-five dollar book. The headlines today uh, around here is that everybody should be getting their check tomorrow, Wednesday. Fingers crossed. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'll have to buy this book before this podcast comes out because there's only six of them Uh-oh. on Amazon. Uh oh. And if you want the hardcover, it's a hundred and fifteen bucks. Yikes. <laughs> Yeesh. That's steep. Well, maybe entrep- uh, uh, enterprising DB Cooper fans can make Xerox copies. We can start a black market on this. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that. I think that book, be for especially for Coop, for Cooperites, definitely in it, definitely a good read. Right. To add to add to the <laughs> library, and we can wave the flag of uh, um, free free use of fair and free use for educational purposes. Well, Najib isn't going to complain about us using it. No, no, <laughs> oh, no. He died 15 years ago. Okay, thank you. That's, that's always good to know. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's uh, Matt Matt Lamadu that uh, Darren had uh, on one of his earlier podcasts that actually kind of brought that to the uh, the Cooper Vortex's attention. What was that? What was that, what was that podcast again? With Matt Lamadou. Did you hear that one, Bruce? He was a Navy SEAL and Air Force pararescue. Okay, I missed that one. I'm going to have to listen to that guy. Yes. Yeah, Smoke Jumper as well. Um, Now we're talking. Yeah, yeah, you definitely got to listen to that one. I mean, he's he's the one that kind of brought that to light about Najib Halabi. And ever ever since I heard that, I've been digging into the guy and it's, it's, it's interesting stuff there for sure. Yeah, and contrary to Mark Meltzer's feelings on the drop zone, Matt says that if he was planning it, he would absolutely plan for a water landing and would never land in the trees at night. He said that's way too dangerous to jump into trees at night. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff I, I kind of disagree with him on. That's that's one of them, but it's it's it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting theory. I just I just don't pick trying to land in the water but i mean he was a 
smoke jumper and stuff like that. So I just, I don't think Cooper had enough control over where he was landing. He didn't really know where he was. It was dark. It was raining. There was some cloud cover. So I think you could hope like, oh man, I really want to land in this area. Or I want to land in a field. I want to land in the water. But actually doing that, I think is much more difficult, especially under the circumstances he was jumping in. Exactly. Yeah. And with, and with the par- with the parachute that he's he believed to have jumped with, um, you know, it wasn't really steerable. Um, from right now, you could you could have pulled on the lines a little bit and kind of had a little bit of control, but like you said, Darren, he had really no no control over where where he was where he was going to land. Um, you know, he he he, he, he might have very well timed when he was going to jump out of the plane and had a kind of a general idea, um, but that's about it. I don't think he had you know any can really control with any any kind of accuracy exactly his his landing zone bruce the name of that episode i just looked it up was db cooper was a frog man with matt lamadu okay yeah you got to give that one listen uh listen bruce i mean he 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 goes he's more he's done more research in halibi than me but uh, it's it's interesting stuff for sure nikki you wanted to talk about the murder of earl cossey Speaking of conspiracy, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, let's get let's get into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let, let's let's get into costs. You know, I know Bruce. I know Bruce has done a lot of uh, investigation on that, so I'll let him take the lead on it. I want to hear what you have to say, Nick. I've I've <laughs> talked a lot about Cassie, and and um, for those who, I'll, I'll give a, a brief overview. I suppose um, Earl Cassie was found murdered um, about this time of year. In fact, yesterday is his anniversary death date of his anniversary the 13th uh i believe wow yeah um in 2013 so we're getting some time now case still unsolved uh he was found um blunt force trauma uh to the head was the cause of death cops have still not revealed um what they think caused the the blunt force trauma uh, case got bumped up to the major case squad of the King County Sheriff's Department, which Seattle is in King County. So the murder took place in Cassie's home in his garage in Woodenville, which is a, a kind of an upscale uh, suburb of Seattle to the northeast uh, from downtown Seattle. And uh, it was in fairly rural-ish wooded uh, neighborhood on a cul-de-sac. Um, and across from Earl Cassie's front door is a wildlife sanctuary, small one, but nevertheless pretty rugged uh, and pretty much tangled and very, very green. Um, and access to his house was just down this one long, long road. And um, in fact, I had trouble finding Cassie's house. I could not find it and I needed help. Um, cause I didn't have GPS and I had to go to a Starbucks and get help from, uh, um, EB Cooper aficionados, uh, that were sipping on lattes. Kasi for me, uh, I spoke with Earl Kasi, uh, several times and every time he talked to me, he said something different. Now to me, I characterize that as being deceitful and lying. And I have written and I believe that Earl Kasi lied to me. I also think that Earl Cassie does not remember what he says. Uh, now, whether he has cognit- had cognitive defic- uh, deficits or it just prides himself on being a bullshit artist and speaks whatever comes to mind, I think that's part of the issue of in Cassie 
two. Um, but he said some really stupid things to me. Uh, the first time I spoke with him, he told me that uh, D.B. Cooper jumped with a paradise parachute. And I said, paradise? I thought it was a paracommander. He says, no, 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 no. It wasn't a paracommander. It was a paradise. And there is no paradise parachute. There's no, whether you're talking about the canopy or the container or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I've never, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Um, he changed, he flip-flopped constantly on what parachute he provided to the FBI, whether it's an NB6, an NB8, and he would go back and forth. Every time I talked to him, it was a different story. Uh, the FBI records reflect that uh, variation. It may not seem like a big deal to anybody. What's the difference between a six and an eight? It's a two-foot di difference in diameter on the canopy. Um, and if right. you're looking at, at an NB6, you know, sitting next to an NB8, most of us couldn't tell the difference. So what's the big deal? To me, the big deal is that it's inconsistent. And here's a guy who was the de facto technical expert on parachutes for the D.B. Cooper case for the FBI. And he can't keep his own friggin' facts straight. So everything else becomes suspect. Adding to the suspect suspicions around Earl Cossey, initially he told his family members that D.B. Cooper made it, that the jump was imminently doable. And that's, in fact, what yep. he told the FBI. The FBI hired him yep. to be a consultant within days of the skyjacking because they, the FBI agents were flabbergasted that anybody would jump out of a plane. And the majority of agents, as I understand it, thought that D.B. Cooper was Superman reincarnated and at the very least must have been a professional skydiver. And they wanted to go to skydiving championships and compare the sketches to guys that were winning the gold war, you know, gold medals and things like that. And Cooper yeah, I, dissuaded them from that. Yeah. What, go ahead, Nick. Oh, I was just going to say that I, I infiltrated myself in, in the skydiving community and <laughs> the FBI showed up at every drop zone all over the West, all over the West coast, Northwest. They showed up at, Pretty much every drop zone everywhere in the United States. That is very true. Yeah. So they put they they early on they they put a lot of their eggs into into that basket that that Cooper that Cooper was a recreational skydiver. Yeah. In fact, uh, the local skydiving jump site is called Thun Field. For me, they no longer allow uh, jumps to take place. Uh, because of all the suburban development around that's grown up around the airport. It's still active. Thunfield um, mm -hmm. is in Puyallup, Washington. And I talked to Bruce Thun uh, about this, who was not only a skydiver, but he was a, 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 a jump master on a plane. So he flew jump planes. And he, his father was in charge of Thunfield. Uh, not, you know, ironically. And Bruce Thun, the son, told me, he says, that the Friday after the skyjacking, FBI agents were all over the place. In particular, yeah. they were asking about some guy who was in his mid-20s. Bruce said, he, I said, he, I knew the guy, but I didn't remember the name. But they had pictures of him and photographs. And they knew that he was scheduled to be at his girlfriend's parents' house in Bend, Oregon for Thanksgiving and didn't make it and had not been in contact with his girlfriend. And they wanted to know where he was. 
did I, you know, and Bruce is saying, did I know? And he says, all I could think of is, how the hell does the FBI have that kind of information on a two-bit skyjacking guy who's, twenty, you know, a skydiving guy from Thun Field who's 25 years old? He says, my God, the level of surveillance and investigation that was going on in the shadows, out of view of everyone, is enormous. Now, this is 1971. Nowadays, you know, we wouldn't be all that surprised. Right. But back in 71, it blew minds, you know. Yeah. Talk about that's a lot of in, That's a lot of intel there. That's a lot of intel. So somebody's taking pictures. Somebody's following up. Someone's Someone knows that he doesn't show up for, for Turkey the day before down in Oregon, 300 miles away. How does that kind of information travel to a field agent with a notebook in his hand? Talking to a guy in, in the office of you know of operations at Thunfield. That's remarkable. Yeah. Absolutely. That is. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good example that just shows how much how hard they looked at the skydiving community and how much how much effort they, they put put into looking into those guys. And it shows you the capacity and the power of the FBI. Some things they do very well. And this is gathering this kind of information, maintaining this level of surveillance is what they excel in and still do to this day, I do believe. It's the the connecting of the dots, as Condoleezza Rice yes. said over 9-11, where the real issue is. How do you merge all this raw data, this raw intel, and make it? actionable as they say in the movies these days yeah and it was it was definitely it was definitely harder back then because it didn't you know it wasn't the computer age no no computers everything like Uh, that no cell phones no cell phones you know they did have facts mark metzler has 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 convinced me that there were operating machines yes that the so the fbi because that's one of the issues with um um i think was with uh the Paul Cini skyjacking two weeks before Cooper. Cini, yeah. Cini? I don't know if it's Cini or Cini. Yeah. The information on that skyjacking was faxed to the Great Falls, Montana Gazette, I believe it was. And they were publishing huh. the story trying to smoke out because the FBI agents thought that Cini had uh, co-conspirators. In Great Falls, which is where he landed the plane. He landed, he forced the plane to land in a couple different places. It took off in Calgary and then it went to Great Falls. And then I think it was going to hop somewhere else to get more fuel. And then was going to go back to, to Calgary and ultimately fly to New York. And he got bopped in the head with an axe somewhere over Minnesota or someplace. Uh, and that was the end of his story. But the FBI at that time thought that there was a, uh, a cell that there could be a cell, there could be conspirators in one of the places where he landed, and I believe it's Great Falls. And so the next day, um, the Great Falls newspaper published the FBI account of the skyjacking. And in that day, I thought it was remarkable that a small, small town, hometown newspaper could get a story from the FBI in detail so quickly. Um, and the FBI it's my understanding, fed them the information via fax. That, 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 that's one of the benefits of all the Cooper conferences because that, that Mark Metzler over beers a couple of years ago at, at the Cooper conference convinced me that that's in fact 
was a possibility back in 1971, before the computers, before the cell phones, before all of that. Huh, that's interesting. So pretty, that could have been very, very much so the inf- the kind of infancy of the of the fax machine. Yeah, yeah, it was in the very. I didn't realize that there were fax machines. You know, uh, I still don't have a fax machine. So you know, 48 wow. years later, I'm still behind the curve. But you know, hey. Yeah, <laughs> I think you might have missed out on that fax machine wave. I may have. I think yeah. they're making a big comeback. Okay. Well, at least I have a microphone so I can talk to you guys. Yeah. Hell right. yeah. <laughs> I'm stepping it up in the world, baby. <laughs> but I wanted I want to get back to Earl Cossey for a second, and oh, I please do. I don't remember hearing that his his driveway was long and secluded. For some reason, I pictured it his house being right on the street. His ha- the driveway was not long and secluded. The access road is long. Oh, okay. Okay. I wouldn't call it long, long. It's not like a mile long. Okay. It's more, it's, it's just a cul-de-sac road. There were maybe four houses or five houses on the cul-de-sac and Cossie's house was the second to the last one. So it was near the end. I was able to, you know, with all the cops there, when he got killed, it was quite, it was quite a to do in the neighborhood. And the neighbors had plenty of things to say. And, and that's where you get all the good stuff. And so I would wander, and along with other reporters, and we were talking to the neighbors and, and got a, a much fuller understanding of Casa. We learned that, that he was divorced and living alone. And, um, and I had suspected that. I had talked to his wife a couple of times. Every time I called Earl, uh, his wife would answer. And she did not sound like a happy wife. She did not sound like a happy woman. Um, particularly taking one more D.B. Cooper phone call for her husband. And, uh, <laughs> and, she, and she divorced him, um, or at least walked out on him, um, before the murder. And so she was, in a lot of people's minds, she was suspect, you know, number one. But for those of us in D.B. Cooper world, we knew it wasn't her. <laughs> that it must be, you know, a wet team from the FBI or someplace, or the CIA, or buddies of E. Howard Hunt or whatever. So... <laughs> and then wasn't wasn't Cossie's wallet um, mailed uh, mailed uh, mailed in or what was, that, what was kind of refreshing? What was the? It the, wasn't the, it wasn't the wallet. It was the contents of the wallet that were mailed back uh, to the F, to the family actually. Uh, so a credit card, a uh, I think a, a Safeway club card and a driver's license. And, maybe something else, a credit card or something like that. I had a very interesting conversation with Joe Weber about that. It was one of the first, it was one of the only really in, a really sane, balanced, even-handed, no shouting, no strill statements, no provocative craziness. And Joe and I were talking about who would mail this kind of stuff back to the Kasi family. And we both agreed it's something a mother would do. Um, huh. And we thought that whoever killed Kasi, maybe it, he was a druggie tweaking and he went home and his mother knew that something was off, that Junior had done something bad again. And either in the laundry, she found a wallet that wasn't juniors and took the stuff out and mailed them back to the family as a good Samaritan kind of thing. And she didn't want any trouble. So she made sure there was no return address, that there were no fingerprints uh, on the envelope. 
and uh, there was no way to trace anything back and no, no fingerprints uh, from Junior or Mom on any of the credit cards or anything that she mailed back. So whoever handled the the stuff and sent it back had some savvy. And Joe and I figured definitely yeah, maybe that's Mom. It sounds like a you know kind of thing a, a mom of a criminal would do. Yeah. Now this whole thing has been with with Cossies, um kind of been looked at as a as a as a home as a home invasion robbery. Um, <clears throat> I know uh, Blevins did was doing some research into this and. He found a, uh, a a bunch of string of robberies in the area around around the same time. Um, do you know what was, if anything was t- was taken from the house? Does it does that add up with the with the robbery with Cossie? Yeah, it's my understanding nothing was taken from the Cossie house, uh, and that the other robberies, the nearest one I think was three blocks away, <clears throat> and the other ones were miles away. Were they in that jurisdiction of the King County Sheriff's Department? Yes. Were they in Woodenville? Yes. Were they near Cossie's home? No. Um, mm. And the and the, and the, those burglaries were all solved. They were local drug addicts. They were young folks. Um, they were very sloppy. They left a lot of cute clues, and the cases were resolved within a matter of hours or days. Uh, not that's not the case with Kasi. Kasi, there was, as far as I understand, there was little or no forensic evidence, no fingerprints, um, huh. nothing was taken from the house, uh, and probably the most telling piece of evidence is that the cops are very tight-lipped, and they really aren't giving out any details. They didn't then, and they aren't now. And I had a long, I had an ongoing, conver- ongoing relationship, an ongoing conversation with the public information officer, uh, Sergeant Cindy um, Kane, I believe her name is, uh, who's now retired from the King, King County Sheriff's Office. And, you know, I asked her point blank, is, you know, is Cossie's murder connected to the D.B. Cooper case? And she said, no. <laughs> but a lot of people are asking me. And I thought that was very telling. And it was taken out of her hands uh, when it got bumped up to the major case squad. And Cindy continued to have a growing interest in the D.B. Cooper case and, in fact, bought my book and promised me upon her retirement that she would tell me all the good stuff. And uh, I keep trying to find her, but so far she hasn't told me and. I don't know where she is or what's happening. So, Cindy, if you're listening, that's in- give that's me a interesting. Call. Come on, girl. Yeah. <laughs> what's your take on what happened, Bruce? The circumstantial evidence surrounding Earl Cossey's death is overwhelming and I think needs to be really looked into. Earl Cossey, for 40 years, had been the FBI's go-to guy on, para, uh, on parachute issues. And in fact, when I would call the FBI and ask the public information officer about information on parachute issues, D.B. Cooper parachutes, such as the Amboy shoot being discovered in 20, uh, 2009, they directly referred me to Earl Cossey. They didn't even answer. They said, oh, that's a question you really need to ask Earl Cossey. So I said, oh, okay, I will. And that's when I first started, curling, started calling Earl Cossey. After, that's 2009. After Jeffrey Gray's book came out in 2011, Earl Cossey's fortunes changed dramatically. 
His reputation went down the toilet in an instant. He went from being the hero and the soothsayer and the truth teller and the go-to guy for the FBI for 40 years in lots of documentaries, constantly being quoted and, and sought by journalists doing D.B. Cooper stories. After Jeffrey Gray wrote that the guy who provided the parachutes was Norman Hayden, and thus was not Earl Cossey, so that Cossey lied about providing the back shoots. Everything went down the toilet for Earl Cossey. And the last time I talked with Cossey, I asked him about this. And I said, you claim that you delivered back shoots to the FBI, that you put them in a taxi cab and you sent them to the wrong airport. You sent them to Boeing Field and that a private car, and the driver has never been identified to this day, got them to SeaTac Airport for the skyjacking. I said, what's the story with that? And he said, F you, and slammed the phone down. And he was dead three months later. So is Earl Cossey involved? I mean, is his murder part of the D.B. Cooper saga? Well, it's definitely part of the literature and part of the, and part of the story. Is it directly connected legally? It might be. I certainly want a lot more information. I need a lot more people to start talking to me. Who would want Earl Cossey dead? Earl Cossey could not keep his mouth closed. And the, the FBI's fortunes were, and public image were closely tied to Earl Cossey. Everything that Larry Carr ever said publicly about the parachutes was first presented by Earl Cossey. Larry Carr spoke at length with Earl Cossey and posted about it in the Drop Zone chat room. And he held Cossey in high regard. But Larry Carr did not read the FBI documents. He did not read the 302s pertaining to the parachutes back in 1971. Or if he did, he didn't understand them. And he accepted Earl Cossey's version of events primarily that Earl Cossey provided the parachutes that D.B. Cooper used. D.B. Cooper picked the wrong parachute. He picked a, 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 um, a chute that he didn't know how to handle, that it was too difficult to pull the ripcord, and that, <clears throat> excuse me, D.B. Cooper was a wuffo and cratered into, into the ground as a no-pull, and we just haven't found the hole that D.B. Cooper landed into. Uh, and basically, the FBI accepted that and spun it to their own advantage, um, explaining why, you know, why they couldn't find D.B. Cooper and why they couldn't solve the case. As one FBI told, agent told me, he says, we can't solve the case because we haven't found the body. That's pretty simple from their point of view. So the public image of the FBI is tied intimately into the credibilities of Earl Cossey. And once Earl Cossey's credibility started to fade, the FBI at least had a motivation to cut their losses and to take Earl Cossey off the public stage in terms of his commentary on D.B. Cooper. So you think it's possible the FBI ordered a hit on Earl Cossey? Of course it's possible. 
as one FBI agent told me, he says, you got, you got to understand how we think. He said, he said, there's a joke in the FBI. He said, we can convict anyone. It's just that the innocent take longer. And he, and he, he told it as a joke, but I think it speaks to a real truth of how agencies with a lot of power who feel pressured for certain outcomes are certainly willing to bend the rules. Look at the level of surveillance on that kid down from Thunfield, that skydiver down in Bend, Oregon, that didn't show up at his girlfriend's for Thanksgiving. Was that all legal surveillance? Were there warrants for that? Were there phone taps for that? Who knows? And no one's asking. But the potentials for wrongdoing are enormous. That said, I do want to put, I, I do not want, let me speak to the patriots who may be listening out there. Is this the action of, of, of the deep state? Enough with the deep state stuff, all right? All I'm saying is, is that the FBI, I want the FBI, I feel we need the FBI, and I benefit from a well-functioning, honest FBI. I just want to reform excesses. And the joke that FBI agents tell each other about that, how the innocent just take long to, to convict, that culture needs to change. But I don't want to blow the whole thing up. So here's kind of my thoughts on 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 causing kind of a, a theory that that I've kind of come up with. Um, like like you said, Bruce, he 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 helped. He aided the FBI in spinning the narrative. He he flipped. There's nothing consistent about what he what he said. He he's flip flopped all the time. Um, like you said, initially initially he said he could have survived, and then he said he said no. He was he was he was a wealthy creator in the ground. And he, he, he was helping the FBI spin that narrative that they wanted to spin that D.B. Cooper didn't make it. Yeah. So and we all know, you know, it's been speculated that Cossie, he, he, uh, he was a degenerate gambler. He was uh, he was in the, he was he needed he was he was in debt. Um, and he, in his, he, need, he needed, he needed, he owed, he owed bookies or whatever money. And it, it, it could have been them that took him out. Could be. And um, that's all true. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, my, th- my theory, my theory is, is he, ne- is he needed, he's, he needed money and maybe, th- maybe he was getting, maybe he was getting, he was getting money from, from the FBI or, or what have you to, Kind of on their books to to cooperate with them and 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 help them and help you know keep keep them keep that narrative alive and he kept you know he kept that he kept asking for more money more money and as he got more in debt with his gambling and stuff like that and eventually he be, he became he became a liability just they knew that he was yeah. just going to keep he would keep asking for more money and they're like okay we. we this is enough's enough. We we got this. He's a liability. He, I think he became a liability at a certain point, and someone somewhere thought they had to take care of him. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't a bookie or somebody like that that they owed money to. It was the people that were paying them to keep quiet and fall in line. But keep quiet about what? Just, just a theory about what he re- about what he really knows. Possibly, maybe, maybe. What? Yeah. What he knew. 
of the FBI's investigation of D.B. Cooper. I believe Earl Cossey was intimately involved in the FBI's investigation. He was hired. He spoke to them. He was a consultant. He went to the office. He was rubbing elbows with them. He was drinking cups of coffee with these guys. Absolutely. You hear things. You ask questions. And he loved the Cooper story. He would show up whenever there was a filming going on. Bruce Dunn told me, he says, they were filming one day uh, on the Barb Dayton story. And Earl Cossey just showed up to see what was going on. You know, he was that kind of guy. It was like a moth to a flame. So did he know how the FBI was really thinking about Cooper? Was there a cover-up going on? Maybe Cossey knew about a cover-up. Did he know some of the shadier aspects of the investigation? For instance, local grunt guys doing investigations, doing good investigations, and yet the information wasn't being passed on up the chain of command, or it got diverted, or it got lost, or how come no supervisors could straighten out the mess that we see over and over and over again in the 302s? The summary reports throughout the Norjack investigation is caca. It is nothing but bureaucratic mess. The information is contradictory. It's misleading. It's incomplete. It's insufficient. How come there wasn't anybody with a good set of brains who could straighten all this out at a supervisory level? Was it done because FBI has stupid middle management? I don't think so. Was it done because it served the FBI purpose to create a smokescreen, a fog of misinformation internally? Maybe. Did Cassie know about that? Cassie certainly could see how the FBI was taking his analysis to paint a very dark picture of D.B. Cooper as being a dumbass who got himself killed. And the FBI ran with that. Now, was, yeah. was Earl yeah. Cassie asked, you know, give us a good narrative that, that really paints Cooper as a jerk. You give us all the good information, all the plausible details, and we'll take it from there. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's what happened. Okay, so maybe he was part. That's maybe he was part of a super duper spin job. And when his credibility went down the drain with Jeffrey Jeffrey Gray in 2011, like we said, somebody said, "Uh oh, we got to cut this guy loose." And then after yep. that, how how I does that happen? And and. I tell you, we could write 16 different kinds of great HBO special TV shots, uh, movies on that, okay? It, remi- it, reminds me, it reminds me of these kinds of conversations when I tell them to public officials like uh, Pierce County uh, prosecuting attorney. He said, Bruce, you have a career, wa- a great career waiting for you in Hollywood. He wouldn't <laughs> confirm or deny anything, any of the facts. He was just encouraging me to take another career path <laughs> away from him. <laughs> yeah. And I, I find it fascinating that that person you mentioned that said that you asked him, you think you think it had anything to do with DB Cooper and they're adamantly said no. And then, and then they bought your book and they, and they started researching yes. the case. I mean, that's a head yeah. scratcher. Yeah. What was Joe Weber's take on it? Did she tell you that, Bruce? No, she she didn't. Um, I think Joe 
was of two minds, as I, as I am. I mean, I hold on to many different possibilities. Did Cooper, did Cassie get whacked by the FBI? Maybe. Did he get whacked by somebody who was a drug addict um, and it was a home invasion robbery that went bad? Maybe. And did mommy clean up Junior's mess? Maybe. Um, was a local bad boy <clears throat> encouraged by somebody in the FBI or the CIA or local law enforcement? You know, we have this problem. You can do us a favor, dude, by taking out this Earl Cassie guy. I don't care how you do it, you know, just as long as, you know, we don't know about it. All these possibilities are real. Um, now, Joe Weber, I think Joe Weber is the kind of woman who in my experience, loves to play both sides, of, work both sides of the street. So she'll say yes, but then this too, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it could be mommy and junior, but it also could be the FBI. But Bruce, what what is what does the evidence speak speak to? If it was if it was a possibly a a, tw a tweak a tweaker, usually those guys need money for drugs. So why wasn't anything taken? A value that could have been used to sell to get to get drugs. Well, or well, yeah. if it was, or if it was, we see yeah, it twenty different times each week on Netflix. You know that some detective goes to their criminal informant, or they bust somebody, and they say, "Look, you know, you know, we we got a two ounces of cocaine on you that you're going to get five years on that." But you know, you can do us a favor, and we'll make this go bye bye. Nah, right? Okay. So you know that shit happens. Come on, let's get real. You know this happens. Yeah. It's, it's how yep. the it's how the world works. Well, that that would that would make that would make some sense uh, if if that was if that was the case, um, or if you know if it was if it was let's say somebody he owed money to, you'd still think they would try to take some. They would try to take whatever they can find in the house to try to recoup some of the money back if if that's what they killed him over. Um, well, you know, the, the FBI agent, Russ Callum, uh, who was very much involved in the um, Richard McCoy skyjacking. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, yeah and Russ. through that, I uh, became very involved in the D.B. Cooper case, which is how I contacted Russ. Russ had a great comment. He says, these kinds of stories, he says, these kinds of investigations, the longer that they go on without being resolved, the story gets bigger and wider and wilder. He said they just, they spread, they become organic. It's just, they become subject to the forces of nature. And I it's think- It's like that, a wildfire. Exactly. You know, which way the wind is going to blow the flames. And I think that's true in the Earl Cassie case. Um, was it, you know, a tweaker, maybe. FBI, maybe. CIA, maybe. Uh, uh, his gambling debts, maybe. I've also heard some strange things uh, that I have not been able to follow up, but is worthy of an investigation, particularly in the Me Too movement, that it has to do with someone that Earl Kasi had a relationship with that was not um, appropriate, let's say. Huh. I wish I could talk to somebody about that. Uh, I've never had that opportunity. Uh, the family has consistently refused to speak with me. They are not responding to emails, not responding to letters, not responding to phone calls, even though they publicly request public assistance. That's that's an interest. That's an interesting angle there. I, I'd be more inclined to I'd be more inclined to believe that than some of the other 
that have been brought forth. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to Joe Weber and Dwayne Weber. They've been making a bit of a resurgence lately with the highest in store. How did she know that? A resurgence because of what? The the highest in store. So I've been, I've actually been doing some digging on this and uh, I went back, back in the old drop zone forum um, because someone, someone mentioned Joe actually mentioned the break-in. It it recently came back up to light because in one of the latest FBI batches of FBI files, it was, it was in the 302s about the Heisen store robbery. Oh, Heisen Washington. And Joe, Okay. Yes. Right. No, yes. Heisen Washington. Yeah. It's it's not actually from what I gather, it's not actually a it's not actually a town. It, all it is, it's a store and it's a PO box. Yeah. It, is it, that correct, there? It's yeah. It's just a store in the middle like of the woods. Yeah. Okay. It's like Ariel, the same thing. I mean, there's you know. Yeah, just like exactly? Ariel. Well, Ariel, from what I understand, is is actually is actually a, a town though. Yeah, okay. that's All true. Right. There's yeah. a bunch of unincorporated areas over there. View yeah. okay. and yeah. Heisen, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Right. So in one of the recent FBI uh, FBI file batches, it mentioned the Heisen store robbery. And uh, Flyjack actually brought brought that to, uh, brought that up on, on the drop zone. And then someone mentioned that Joe was talking about this uh, – Back, back, uh, back when she was on the drop zone, back in the uh, in the mid 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 two thousands, two thousand two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen. I want to say it was twenty thirteen. Yeah, when she mentioned it the first time. Yeah, twenty thirteen was when she first mentioned it because I, I did a search on the drop zone on it and I found all her old posts. And she, she, she. She was talking about the drop zone, uh, about the Heisen store being broken into. At first, she's at one post. She said, "Oh, I wonder if any. I wonder if it was broken into." And then, and then she said it was broken into through th- through the bathroom window. And she said when she she last visited the store was in was in two that was in two thousand and ten. And I actually w- w- was able to find the owners of the store. Uh, during during that during that that time period, uh, when Joe would have been there, and I and I asked them if they knew anything about that, and they had they had no idea, and she, and she said, the, so the, I think the only way she would she would have learned that is is when she was at the store and she and she asked the owners and they and they told him something about that, told her something about that. But I I talked to the owners of the store during that time and they knew nothing about it. And I talked to the previous owners and the, the owner, the owner of it in 71 when Cooper, uh, when Cooper did the hijacking and the break-in occurred, he passed away um, a few years ago. So can't ask him anymore, but everyone in the chain of, in the chain of uh, ownership that I've talked to, nobody really recalls the break-in. So how the hell did Joe know about this? Yeah, that's that speaks directly to the great mystery of who Joe Weber is. How does she get right. these really juicy tidbits of information that no one else has? Yes, yes. She has an uncanny ability to do that. In fact, when I first encountered Joe Weber through the Drop Zone chat room, 
and started talking to her and communicating with her, uh, I began to suspect that someone was feeding her information, that she was really the point person for, Reapers. Uh, for possibly a counter-surveillance program of those of us doing research in the D.B. Cooper, just to keep tabs on us, to know what we knew, to, to know what we, to, to learn what we knew and what we were doing with that information and things like that. Interestingly enough, Joe and I, in 2010, went all around Hessen and that area, driving around. As she recapitulated the, what did she call the, the, the journey to paradise or the adventure in paradise or something like she, her, her, her road trip. Yeah. So were, were you part of that crew, Bruce? Cause she mentioned in her, in her posting, she was with a crew. Maybe that, maybe you were a part of that crew. Yeah, well, no, no, I wasn't part of the crew. It was Joe and me. Um, okay. I, I spent two days with Joe. Um, and we were very fortunate not to kill each other. Um, in fact, there were, there, were, there, were, there were many times that were quite actually quite pleasant. Um, and we basically went down the uh, memory lane, was the memory lane uh, road trip with Joe Weber as she tried to recapitulate in her own mind where she went with Dwayne Weber back in whatever, 1960-something, whatever, okay, which is... something, yeah. Yeah, or seven, whatever, which would be the whole genesis of her D.B. Cooper story about her husband, Dwayne Weber, who she says confessed to, right. who confessed to being Dan Cooper uh, upon his death. Joe, in the time that I spent with her, really did not know where she was. And I couldn't tell if she was making it up on the fly and adding details as we came along certain kinds of landmarks like oh that hill looks familiar uh, particularly since it has that transmission line going off on the right hand side of the ridge line <laughs> you know i think that's where Dwayne said that he was walking when he was a kid yeah but yeah, you know and it was it and that's just joe okay yeah um and she's filled with stream of consciousness stuff but she hits the gold mine Every now and then, and you can you can't. It's hard to dismiss Joe Weber, right? Because she she seems so trying to connect everything and so out there and just so batshit crazy. But then, but then you, but then you find shit that she said, and afterwards it's in the FBI three hundred twos. Like yeah. what the hell? So yeah, if I may, let, I, I want to tell you two. Since we're talking about Joe Weber, I'll tell you t- briefly two two quintessential Joe Weber stories. Okay. Yeah. The first is my first meeting with Lee Dormuth. Lee Dormuth was the brother-in-law of Tina Mucklow. So, so Lee Dormuth is an FBI agent living in Shelton, Washington, uh, and his wife Jane Mucklow is Tina's sister. Now, this was back in 2010 when Tina wasn't talking to anybody. So I went looking for family members, and I found Lee, and I went to his house. I called many times, and they never responded. So I went to the house on a Sunday afternoon to see if I could speak with Jane. Jane refused to come to the door, but she sent her husband. Okay, so Lee comes out here. You know, fortunately, he wasn't packing, okay, any of his weapons. And we had had a brief conversation on the doorstep, and I introduced myself. And he says, oh, yes, I know you because Joe Weber called my wife last night. And was on the phone was her his lines. My wife was camped out on the phone with Joe Weber last night, all night long. 
That's a direct quote from Lee Dormuth. Now, how wow. the hell did Joe Weber know Lee Dormuth's telephone, home phone number and get through to Jane and be buddy-buddy with her for hours and know that I was going to be there? And, they, and, and he said, yes, we were warned that you were coming. Joe Weber warned us that you were coming. So that's quintessential wow. Joe Weber. Okay. Yeah. And that shows a lot, a lot of capability for someone that can seem so, so scattered and so out there and so incompetent. Incompetent. Yeah. Exactly. He's constantly whining and moaning about not having a computer that works and doesn't know how to send an email and can't download exactly. pictures. Yeah. And it's, it's just an endless stream of technological problems, you know, with Joe Weber. Right. And yet she can access information, you know, that I can't. <laughs> it's mind boggling. It, it is. Joe, Joe is one of the shining stars in the the Cooper World firmament of weirdness <laughs> that makes this she story. fits right in uh, she fits right in she does. it's, she's it's so, a complete she's conundrum so she's so compelling what do you think of Dwayne as a suspect i don't think much of him um but again i i, I mean Dwayne is one of the guys who confessed now did he did he confess or is joe lying about it or just what and Darren, if I may, one of the earliest conspiracies that I have posted, and no one has ever talked about it since, but when I joined the Drop Zone chat room in 2008, there was a whole flurry of confessees, Dwayne Weber, Barb Dayton, Kenny Christensen, and probably some other guys. All right. Right. That was like when it was in its infancy, everybody confessing up. Right. And I come into this conversation as a newbie. I'm a newspaper recorder, reporter covering a local story about basically my entree into the D.B. Cooper story was covering two authors, Ron and Pat Form, as they're writing about Barb Dayton. And my editors didn't want to hear about D.B. Cooper. They wanted to hear about local folks writing about D.B. Cooper. So that's what I did. And I wrote five stories about the foremans and learned a lot about Barb Dayton and the D.B. Cooper case along the way. And being that I'm an alternative kind of lifestyle, new agey kind of guy, and I knew a lot about MKUltra and mind control and nefarious doings at the FBI and the CIA and all that kind of stuff, and I've always been following it for decades. One of the conspiracies that I posted is, is it possible that everybody who says they're D.B. Cooper thinks, really thinks they're D.B. Cooper because they've been brainwashed to believe they're D.B. Cooper? Yep. Yep. And has some agency, you know, CIA, NSA, pick a number, Delta Force, whatever, you know, pick, pick your favorite nefarious agency of your choice, has perhaps recruited people to do certain kinds of operations. And part of their training is to convince them that they're D.B. Cooper. And part of the training might be participating in rituals of burying ransom money at Tina Bar and tying Tina Mucklow into the money find at Tina Bar. Now, when I presented all of that stuff, Georgia, 
just went apoplectic. Uh, Georgia is a guy who does not suffer um, alternative <laughs> theories very well, particularly when somebody who's voicing them is, is a new guy and has not bowed down to the altar of Georgia yet. And he, he taught me a new one. I mean, he just, I, I would say of all of my journalistic encounters, um, Georgia's rebuke of me back in 28, 2008, still stings. It was the deepest journalistic wound I have ever experienced. I'm going to have to go look that up. Well, I just, I just, I just gave you the highlights, you know, do I believe that? No, not necessarily. It's, but it's a possibility. It would, it would certainly, it would certainly offer an explanation, Bruce. Yes. It would tie up a lot of loose ends and would make a great movie when I go down to Hollywood. (laughs) For sure. And so, so it's that would offer an explanation for sure. I mean, you get so you got uh, if, if you believe Joe, you know she she says they were there a couple months before, and um, and, and Dwayne Dwayne took her there, and and Dwayne took a walk alone there, yeah. right? Yeah. So if if you want to believe if you want to believe Joe, which some there's been stuff that we've we found that have come back true. Yeah. So it's like, and and how? Why would she make this whole? Why would she make this whole thing up and be in the Cooper community for years and make posts after posts and do all this commitment if she didn't actually believe? Well, the mind, the mind is a funny thing. But it just seems like a hell of a lot of commitment to me. Yeah. So, but not only do we have that, so we have. We have got we have uh, Wolf Wolfie Wolfgang Gossett. Now we're really talking paranormal. I mean, he was a pro, <laughs> right? But um, Darren Darren had um, Greg, was it right? Yeah, Darren? Greg. Yeah, yeah. He, Darren had Greg on his son. Yeah, and 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 Greg said that that Wolfgang took his wife at the time to Tina Bar. Again, it was before the money find. A little before the money find. And and she told his wife something to the effect I don't know the exact the exact details is kind of escaping me right now but something to the fact is to the, where this is where DB Cooper would have buried his money or if I was DB Cooper this is where I would have uh, where I would have buried it right Darren yeah and and Greg knew this woman to be a no nonsense wouldn't tell a lie type of person. She would say that he would call Wolfgang out on his. He'd like to exaggerate on stories and stuff like that, and he would always call, always call Wolfgang out on it. And this was a person that he wouldn't believe to make something up like that. Mm-hmm. So again, we have another interesting situation there at Tina Bar. Oh yeah, def- definitely throw Greg uh, Wolf throw Wolfie into the to this what I call the. So was Wolfie was Wolfie another guy under MK Ultra mind control? Possibly that would be that, would, that would be in the. That would be an explanation. There's got to be some reason. I don't think it's just random coincidence that they would both go to those spots shortly before the money find. Yeah, and then throw in the Rackstraw people, and and because you know they they claim that the Ingrams were in cahoots with the cocaine dealers in Portland, and were and were and, and telling uh, somebody one of Col- Tom Colbert's uh, sources that that they had been told that the money was going to be found at Tina, Tina bar, you know, the week before or something like that. 
So that's yep, I got that on my notes too. That's that's a that's the third incident yeah. that I've all connected to the Tina Bar. So if you believe I believe the guy's name was Ron, I mean that's what started it all yeah, off for yeah, Tom Colbert. Yeah, exactly. It was just, exactly. It was just Ron's right. name. Yeah, maybe this is all true. Maybe maybe Joe maybe Joe Weber is telling the truth about most of Dwayne Weber. She just doesn't understand the context of it all. She doesn't she doesn't see the bigger picture yet. That's where I'm leaning towards, Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and while we're throwing people in the Cooper crew, let's add in Walter Recca, okay? Yes. Vern, what was he doing? Yeah, yellow. Exactly. So he's he's definitely in the woods on the night of the skyjacking. And the, the real question is, what the hell was he doing there? Walking around in a suit, you know, drenched to the bone. And Vern Jones told me something very interesting at the Cooper conference two years ago. He said... Because I, I, I told him, I said, look, I don't, I don't think Walter Recker is D.B. Cooper, and I think you guys are way off base, um, but I do think Walter Recker uh, needs to be investigated because, like we said, what was he doing in Clay Ellum? And, and what was his relationship, exact relationship, with the CIA and the, the Viennes company that he was recruited out of into the CIA to become a, a hitman? Um, and Vern told me, he says, Bruce, you may be on to something. He says, because, he says, Lauren, Carl Lauren, the guy who wrote the book that Vern Jones, the publisher, published about Walter right. Recker, uh, told him that Walter Recker had, had told Carl, his friend Carl, the author, that when he was first recruited into the CIA, he spent 18 months in training and that the, the, the quote that Walter Recker used was, they sculpted my mind. Yes. And I I told Vern, I said, dude, you got to follow up on that. Absolutely. And he said, you know, well, not today. Yeah, Recker is a really mysterious figure. He is. I mean, everything lines up so well and he has a witness, but it's wildly outside the drop zone. And then the rest of his life gets real mysterious. It's, it's that's a pattern in the DB Cooper world. Look at look at Tina Mucklow. Maybe Walter. Maybe Walter felt that he was skyjacking a plane, and this was part of his training: was to jump out of a seven twenty seven over Clay Ellum. Maybe that all really happened. Absolutely. And let's let let's continue this pattern. What about Richard Floyd McCoy? What was he doing in Vegas the day before? Uh, how did how did he? How did he do? How did he do some things that were exactly how DB Cooper did his heist? Exactly. Did he learn from DB Cooper, or what? He was he fed this information, right? Or was he was he part of a training crew? You know, did, exactly. Did, who who taught DB Cooper how to steal an airplane, the seven twenty seven? Did did DB Cooper learn on his own, or did he have a mentor? And did that that third party? Did he that mentor teach? McCoy and the rest of the gang and Recca and Barb and Dwayne and you know how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Could be a deep one. <laughs> it's a New York City subway. Yeah, that is interesting. The fact that multiple suspects could be involved on a certain level. Yeah, yeah. The the only two things I can think of that that explain it are what what Bruce is alluding to, MK Ultra mind control, or they were involved in a. In an extraction team on the ground in some way. 
I mean, those are the only two things that I can think of yeah, well, that, would, yeah. that would kind of explain these things. Yeah, you, you raised one of my favorite issues about McCoy. Uh, you mentioned that McCoy was in Las Vegas. We we know from FBI records that McCoy was in Las Vegas the night the day before the skyjacking. He was also in Las Vegas the day after the skyjacking. So the question is, did he drive to Las Vegas to get on a plane and fly to Portland to get on Flight 305? And there's plenty in the FBI who believe that he did. And Russ Callum, who we mentioned earlier, is one of those people who who, who truly believe that. I mean, Russ Callum is a true believer in, in that scenario. The other, yeah, the other alternative is that McCoy participated in the skyjacking, but was not the skyjacker. And was he part of an extraction team? That would explain one way how he knew he knew some intimate details about that weren't that weren't public about how DB Cooper did his hijacking and how he emulated that. Right, and where he came up with six thousand bucks uh, out of the clear blue sky that the FBI right has noted that something happened over the Thanksgiving Day weekend, and Richard McCoy had a whole lot of money. That he never had before. He was a guy living a lot of money, and he had, took his family yeah. on a on a nice on a on a nice trip. I think to North Carolina, right, right, from, right. where he where he lived, right. and you know, right. where, where did he, where did that all of a sudden he gets he gets so flush with get so flush with with cash? And like I said, what was he doing in Vegas? The guy put it in context for you guys, if you don't know Richard Floyd McCoy's kind of background, the guy, the guy's a Mormon, a Sunday school teacher. I mean, what? There's nothing for those. For, for a person like that to do in Vegas, they don't gamble, they don't drink, they don't smoke. What what's what do you, what do you do what are you doing there unless you're up to something something shady? Yeah, or, or something. Also, remember, uh, not only was McCoy a, son, a Mormon Sunday school teacher, but he was also uh, studying to be uh, in training to be a Utah State policeman and scored one or two ignition right. tests. So here's a guy uh, on one part of his life as a straight arrow and a law enforcement kind of guy um, and a military hero, in my view, because as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, he went above and beyond the call of duty uh, and went out and used his chopper to rescue Arvin soldiers. And that was not mandated. And it's a dirty little secret of the Vietnam War that American pilots did not go stick their neck out to save Vietnamese soldiers. They're allies. So unless you were in a combined operation, the Americans stood down and the Vietnamese were on their own. And as we well know, they ended up getting decimated most of the time. And can Wolfgang be linked linked to McCoy? You know, they were both Mormon. They both lived in the same area. Absolutely. And and, and I did some research on on the Ancestry websites. And then I, I found a bunch of McCoy and Gossett links through through like ancestry and 23 and me and everything like that so uh, uh, there's there's uh there's some stuff out there that they, they there's a good chance they knew each other they're possibly related that would be wild if wolfgang told mccoy how to pull it off <laughs> that would that would offer an explanation darren i'm in good company you guys are way out there <laughs> 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 this is the conspiracy panel, right? That's right. What do you think of Wolfgang? Because you've been, oh, I'm sorry, but you've been pretty close with Galen, and I haven't, I haven't been able to speak with him. Um, Galen is in a strange position. 
these days. He um, he's not active in the DB Cooper research and world, so he's not commenting in any of the chat rooms. Um, and he doesn't speak to a whole lot of people. He, he and I are good buddies, and so we're constantly communicating with each other. And uh, um, and he made a choice about five or six years ago that he was tired of living as a impoverished D.B. Cooper researcher because, <laughs> because even though he's an attorney, he poured every dime, spare dime he had into into D.B. Cooper research. And he told me, he says, I haven't been keeping a running total, but it's at least 50 grand. Uh, that's a serious commitment. Also, too, he had it in his own mind and, and still does to this day that he didn't want to write a book until he could solve the case. And he thought that Gossett was Cooper. And he pushed that hard. And I, it's my observation, it's my understanding that Galen came up against some wall of his own creation that he just couldn't get beyond, that he felt blocked. And coupled with his own desire to at least get a few shekels and put them in the banks, you know, save for a rainy day. And I think there was a woman involved and maybe she wanted to get married and like, let's buy a house, you know. So I think I think he had oh, okay. I think he had Didn't know about that, right? this is my this is my own subjective speculation upon Galen sure. motivations. But when anybody makes a left hand turn in their life, I'm always thinking that a woman is involved. So uh, <laughs> right. Galen has not denied that, uh, but he has not confirmed it either. So he's very okay. much the attorney whenever I push him about his love life. Um, anyway, so he has not been overly responsive and overly open. Um, and I think it's just a question of mental energy that he is really investing in his uh, legal practice and his career and is trying to make some money. And is enjoying very much what he's doing. He's involved in medical malpractice suits. I didn't know that there were that many bad doctors in Alaska, but he apparently has a thriving practice in medical malpractice. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was some more t context I didn't have. Yeah. Um, because I thought maybe possibly somebody, Galen figured it out, or possibly Galen had some information that some people didn't want out there and – that's what kind of stonewalled him. Um, just, just another uh, Galen. <clears throat> Galen is unique in the DB Cooper world, in my view, for his ability to make friends in law enforcement and have meaningful conversations and contact with the feds, with the FBI, in particular Larry Carr and Curtis Eng. I know that Galen had many person-to-person in-face interviews with both agents and numerous email exchanges between the two of them. And his relationship with the FBI goes back decades because Galen also sued the FBI in 2003-2004. Um, and even though for, for access to the D.B. Cooper case, um, and even though was denied overt access to the files by a court ruling, he was able to wrangle from the judge a caveat 
that he could examine FBI files on D.B. Cooper if he didn't take any pictures, took no written notes, and all the files stayed in the FBI office, and he did not take anything out of the office. And that was in 2004, before Larry Carr showed up. And You know who that reminds me of, Bruce? I don't know if you, you saw the, uh, the, the, the Zodiac movie, but um, what's that guy that wrote the book on, uh, on Zodiac? Uh, Robert Graysmith. In that movie, he did the same thing. The guy let him in. He's like, okay, I'll give you – he's like – he kept begging. He's like, okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a certain amount of time in here. You can't take anything in. You just got to remember everything by memory. Yeah. And just went in there and just like did that kind of thing you're talking about with what Galen did, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not I, – I, I think it happened. I've never heard anybody else describe it actually happening to me, but I've certainly seen movies. And, I, and it seems to be the kind of strategy – FBI agents and the, 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 the Bureau itself would want to cultivate relationships, backdoor channels, if you will, uh, with investigators or people who can provide them with information that they cannot easily get in other ways. And, I, and Galen has brought a lot of information to the FBI. It's not a one-way street. The FBI, in my view, considers Galen Cook to be an asset to them to be somebody who can deliver the goods. He's easy to speak with. He's reasonable. He's articulate. He's insightful. He's smart. And he does the work. He's dogged. And he puts his money where it is. What's not to love with someone who can provide information, in particular, on Wolfgang Gossett? And Galen has done it with lots of other uh, suspects. Galen, Wolfgang is not the first suspect that Galen has really sunk his teeth into. Galen has told me that there have been other suspects that he, he declines to name specifically, but he says that agents said, yeah, we've been looking into that guy too, and it's not him. We, we, we know con- conclusively that it's not. So one little, one little more tidbit on Galen and Wolfgang Gossett. Galen has asked me not to pursue Wolfgang very much and has asked me not to contact any of the family members like greg um so darren thank you very much for for doing an interview with with greg gossett so that i can hear from the old boy himself um i've i've honored that galen is a number of times has asked me not to follow up on uh individuals that he's made contact with in particular not only the gossett family but also to tina mucklow's ex-husband um and the husband and Galen have a ongoing relationship that Galen, I think, protects by keeping it very exclusive to him. So I don't even know where the guy is or what his phone number is or anything like that. All I know is the name. Yeah, I know. I remember I asked I asked you about when I was digging into Tina. I asked you about about him, and you just you just, uh, told me what you told. I got his name, but that was that was about, that was about it because there's really nothing nothing out there on him. Perhaps the strangest piece of information about Tina that's come out is her interview um, with the Eugene, Oregon Weekly in 2012, where she very brief, she never talked about, she refused to talk with uh, uh, the journalist about uh, D.B. Cooper, but she talked about her time in the convent and she also talked about her time as a flight attendant. And she said that she worked for 10 years after the skyjacking as a flight attendant for Northwest Orient. And that she... That was not true. Yes. No, it's not true. And she also flew primarily 
the routes to the Orient. And I think that she was prompted or motivated somehow to share that information in an effort to cripple or thwart the narrative that Kenny Christensen was D.B. Cooper, because Kenny flew routes to the Orient for Northwest Orient as a purser exclusively. And in the 70s, there were only a handful of flights, you know, Manila, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Osaka, and that's about it. So so D.B. Cooper and Tina Mucklow are working for the same airlines, flying to one of four or five same airports, spending 12 hours in the air each way, and never meet? You kidding me? Come on. So I don't know if that fits conspiratorial the theme of the day, but right, Bruce, because we we've only seen her we've only seen her two times: the press conference after the right after the hijacking, and then in 2016 on the History Channel documentary. Yeah, what was the what was the, what was the title of the document the entitled documentary? DB Cooper cased closed. Yeah, case closed. Right. So. Was this, you know, can, did Tina think, yo, I can, I can be done, I can be done with this. Uh, I just let me do one more showing. We'll put this is going to put close the case, and I, I'm not going to be bothered as much anymore. Uh, that's it. People will leave me the hell alone. Possibly. That's that's one. That's that's a strong possibility. The other possibility is that the FBI has some kind of leverage over. You know, Absolutely. And they said. Absolutely. We know you don't want to hear from us anymore, but you need to do one more thing for us. Now, what? Now, whatever that leverage is, I don't know. Okay, and is it something? Absolutely. Is it something personal to Tina? I don't know. Is it something in her family member? I don't know. You know, again, that's so, another. Yeah, that's another piece of information to bring to Hollywood to bring you know to write a D.B. Cooper show on. Um, yeah. So, so let me let me try to take a stab at this here, since you know this is. The conspiracy, the conspiracy panel. So you're gonna go. So big. Otherwise, we're gonna go home. Let's what? Let's go. Let's go big here. So was 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 Tina on? Was Tina on a pay? Was the leverage money? Was Tina on? Was Tina on a payroll? Was 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 Tina getting some kind of compensation here? And um, I believe um, I I believe. I don't know where this came from, but I believe Florence did say, I think Tina's hiding something or she's not saying she, she knows more than what she's saying. I know that came out of somewhere at one point. Yeah, right? The last person to actually speak with Florence Schaffner, who was the third flight attendant. So there were three flight attendants on board 305, Tina, Mucklow, Florence Schaffner, and then the purser was uh, Alice Hancock, who had minimal contact but significant contact with D.B. Cooper and the, and the two junior flight attendants who were handling the economy class seats, whereas uh, Alice was up front in the first class area. Um, Galen and Jeffrey Gray were the last two people to speak with Florence Schaffner, I believe in 2010. Um, and she was quite chatty with both of them and then clammed up all of a sudden out of the clear blue sky. And, and I got caught in that shift. And so Florence never spoke to me, never responded to emails, anything like that. Uh, Galen and I strongly suspected that her new husband, who was a retired cop, uh, put his foot down and says, honey, you ain't talking to any more of those journalist guys. And uh, oh, oh, I didn't know. She, yeah, she complied. I didn't know she yeah, she complied. That, that's the leading speculation. Florence, oddly enough, will not speak to Joe Weber. 
Florence Schaffner is one fish that got away from Joe Weber. And I don't know how that happened. It leads me to believe that D- Joe Weber has a sugar daddy in D.B. Cooper World somewhere. And her sugar daddy feeds her lots of information, but refused to let Florence be part of the, the gifting to, to Joe. At any rate, that's my own personal speculation. Um, but Galen said this about Florence, that the last time he spoke with her, he said it was her understanding, Florence's understanding, that Tina spent 45 minutes alone with D.B. Cooper, where there was no contact or communication with the cockpit or anybody. And the question is, what happened during those 45 minutes? And Florence believes, she strongly suspects that Tina was sexually assaulted by D.B. Cooper. Yeah which has led Ralph Himmelsbeck to say for almost 50 years that Cooper was a sleazy, rotten criminal, crook. Right. To the point to the point where everybody who went to Ralph Himmelsbeck retirement party in the FBI was wearing a T-shirt that said, he's a sleazy, rotten crook. Now that's, that's, how, that's how those words became so... Became kind of, yeah. And I've always, I've always wondered why, I've always wondered why Himmelsbeck, you know, has has kind of took you know has kind of taken that that stance on on cooper yeah. when there there was there's really no evidence to back up any of his statements exactly. that would offer that would offer an, an explanation for sure exactly um and this is this is not the only place that i've that i've actually heard this 40 the 45 minutes in the in the lab in the laboratory thing um although it's 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 little it's little known um <clears throat> Where did you? I'm sorry. Where did you hear this again, Bruce? From uh, from Galen. From Galen. That's it, 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 it's my it's, it's my memory of what Galen told me about his last <coughs> phone call with Florence. I actually heard that also from Greg Gossett, Ooh. but it wasn't sexual assault. He said that they were making out, uh-huh. or they were just kissing. Wow. Yeah. And then if you if you listen to the the Lauren Peterson interview with the Washington State Historical Society, Lauren Peterson was working for for and for uh, Northwest uh, Orient that day. Um, and he, he uh, he's got a whole interview. You can find you can find it up on YouTube. Uh, I believe it's on uh, on Shutter's YouTube page, the DB Cooper Forum. And in Lauren Peterson's interview, he also speaks to that 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 cooper was in the cooper was in the laboratory he didn't say it was tina but cooper was in the laboratory for that same amount of time yeah doing what Who knows? so where where did if some people try to question this lauren peterson interview it's like oh he was just he was maybe he was making some stuff up or maybe he he had a miss he was kind of misremembering some things or he was trying to like he took things that he kind of he kind of found he kind of found out and was like just kind of making up a little bit of a story but i mean to to take to take that that was very it wasn't it wasn't really out there so yeah. how, how did he get, how did he get that yeah now re- refresh my memory lauren peterson is the fellow that was at the northwest orient uh, freight desk and was there that at the freight at the money yes did you ever listen yes did you ever listen to that interview bruce yeah, yeah the washington state yeah, but, yeah exactly yeah, but it's umpteen years ago and you know um like I said, you know, I'm suffering from pre- premature dementia, and, and you know, God knows. Sure. What, you know, senior. Yeah. Having seen and, and a lot of some people try to discredit. Yeah. Yeah, some people try to discredit it, like, oh, he want just wanted to be, 
wanted to, he was kind of making some stuff up, wanted to be a part of the case. And he was just kind of taking some stuff and pieces of things together. But I don't know. I, I believe him. I don't, I don't, I don't see a reason why the guy would, would make stuff up to be honest with you. Yeah. 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 And both possibilities are true that he is telling the truth and also that he's making stuff up. Cause I mean, all the facts that he gave it all, it, it all lined up and he's, and he said that he actually he's the one that put the money he he got the money and he put it in the in the canvas bag and he put $250,000 not $200,000 in there yeah. which 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 to me it's i don't know it's very well likely he might not have been making it up because what if what if the guy at the bank didn't take the take the 50,000 out of the cuz it was already it was the 250 was already was already uh, put was already bundled up. Uh, the, the whole, was, all the bills were marked. It was the whole two fifty already bundled up, ready to go, packaged up. So maybe he just gave him the whole two fifty to the FBI guy because he said the FBI guy went up the stairs to see first bank, and the guy just gave him to him. Here, here, here you go. Here's the money, and the FBI guy didn't have to sign for it. He didn't have to show his credentials. He just kind of gave it to the guy and said, "Yep, okay, here you go." Um, and maybe he just, he gave him the whole 250. He's like, here, you guys take the 50,000 out. I'm just going to give you the 250 that's already packaged up here. Here you go. Yeah. And thinking that the FBI or like whoever would, would, uh, would take that rest of that money out. But how would they know that that guy, that that kid did that? Well, Flyjack at the DB Cooper forum several years ago offered some pretty uh, compelling information. And I forget what the source was. I don't know if it was 302s or it was um, uh, ancillary investigations. But it's my understanding from what Flyjack was was presenting was that the 50 extra grand was taken out and that 30 of the grand uh, was 20s and 20 was in 10s or 5s. I forget which. And that money was set aside, and those serial numbers had to be removed off of a master list. And in that transfer of numbers, they made a couple errors. And so the I believe there's two numerical errors, typos or transmission errors on the master list that either the money, uh, the serial numbers on the D.B. Cooper ransom list uh, two of the bills are either not there or were part of, you know, the at fifty grand or something like that. Um, I found that oh, okay. I found that information to be compelling that the fifty grand was removed, and so only two hundred grand left the bank, and only two hundred grand showed up at SeaTac Airport, and Lauren Peterson only had two hundred grand to check. So that's that's a little bit con- that's a little bit contradictory there, unless they did that. And they did that after uh, Lauren Peterson put that money in the bag. Um, th- does Fly did Flyjack have any documents on this? I that's something I've never. I, I uh, missed out as, on. as I re- as I recall, there there was some documentation uh, supporting his commentary, uh, his scenario. Um, it goes back a couple of years ago. Good luck finding it at the forum. Um, I don't have very good success. Research. We're in quarantine right now. I have nothing else to do. I'll see if I can. Yeah, there you go. We'll keep us all posted. All right. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know there was a lot of interesting conversation about was the money actually found at the beach at Tina Bar? Part of the two hundred yeah. grand? 
or was it part of the 50 grand that was left behind you know and was it huh. you know interesting and, and was it and was it delivered to other criminals uh, in other ransom extortion crimes and they buried the money at Tina Bar you know I, and I thought huh. you know again that's another great storyline to bring to Hollywood you know <laughs> absolutely you know and that involves rack straw <laughs> that would offer an explanation yeah and all the guys in the ingram family and the blah 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 you know and why Dwayne, why Dwayne ingram was so squirrely and you know yeah what yeah why was he yeah why was he so squirrely there's i think there's something that he he was hiding um in his in his uh in his first initial interview when he when when he found the money that I, he didn't in the press conference he just said that that his son his son Brian just uh, just made a little just uh, made a little clear made a little clear and cleared the space. But then on the History Channel thing, he said he he wanted to clear a space right here. But he said no 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 that something was there not a good spot. Yeah, uh, what about it, over yeah, here? Yeah. Don't do it here. Do it there. Yeah. So that don't do it here. Do it. Don't do it there. Which in his initial press conference, he didn't mention anything about that. Yeah, I think. Georgia at at the DB Cooper Forum offers a lot of good insight into how stories spin and how narratives shift and how personal agendas influence people's memories, their relationships. Who, you know whose sto- whose toes they don't want to step on, who they don't want to make look bad, who they do want to make look bad these kinds of things. And Georgia has posted, and hopefully he will write someday, his descriptions of his interviews with the Ingram family. And my conversations with Georgia have been about the Ingram family and the money find. have been absolutely invaluable. And uh, I praise him to the highest. Georgia is a prickly son of a bitch who's tough to live with. I'm glad I'm not in quarantine with him because I don't think he would survive. But I'm here to tell you, as a D.B. Cooper researcher, he's fantastic. And he's done a lot of good work oh, yeah. on the Ingram family. And the Ingram family, like most people's families, is pretty screwed up. And you don't get the same story out of any two people in that family, out of the five. So you talk to the wife, you talk to the husband, you talk to the kid, you talk to the niece, you talk to the auntie. Everyone's got a different story. Right. And that's the way it is. Yep. And not, not only that, we got contradictory stuff there. And then we got we got contradictory from the FBI and the Fazios. We got the FBI yeah. got the FBI saying we got money. We found the money shards. We got the one of the Fazios that are driving the backhoe saying we didn't they didn't find any money shards. Right. It's complete uh, complete baloney. Right. So what 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 the hell are we supposed to what the hell are we supposed to believe here? Well, welcome to the world. What do we believe, Bruce? What do I believe? What do we believe? What do we believe? Well, I don't know about we, but I can tell you what I believe. Uh, I hold every, I accept everything with a grain of salt, and I think it just comes down to a preponderance of evidence and credibility. What stories line up with other stories? What are the facts are as best as we can determine them? And I think you always have to examine everything that everybody says, including FBI agents, with a very careful lens, because I think everybody, whether it's the Ingram family or it's the FBI or it's me or it's you, will see things through our own personal lens. 
and lends perspective. Absolutely. And sometimes we have overt agendas, so we will lie or distort or leave things out. And sometimes, unconsciously, we, you know, I don't want to make Tina, I'm in love with Tina Mucklow, so I don't want to make her look bad. But, you know, so my reporting on Tina Mucklow, yeah, I know. you know, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to tell the world yet one more time, I have a crush on Tina. So Tina, if you're looking, if you're listening, please <laughs> give me a friggin' phone call. Will you girl? Come on. All right. Let's go out to dinner or something. And, uh, you know, so, you know, we all have, we all have personal perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do I believe? I believe that money was found at Tina Bar, the bundles, definitely. I think that there was some degree of shard placement. So pieces of money were found. Now, were they at the tide line, like FBI agent Mike McFeeters has said, and that he dug up multiple pieces of, of shards, some two and three inches in, in size? Um, or was that bullshit? Is he lying? I have queried him the last time I called him to ask him to clarify what he remembers. He hung up on me. Um, so that's so much for that. Um, Dorwin Schroeder, who was the public information officer during the recovery, during the dig at Tina Bar, and became, you have to remember, Russ, uh, Ralph Himmelsbach retired from the FBI two weeks after the money was found at Tina Bar. And the person who took over the skyjacking desk and the Norjack case in Portland from Ralph Himmelsbeck was Darwin Schroeder. And so Darwin has a long history with, with Norjack beginning in February of 1980. And Darwin's commentaries on the shrouds, on the shards is all over the place. And I don't know, I don't know if Darwin is telling me the truth. He has said everything from there were shards. There were so many shards in the sand, even a blind man could find them. You know, that that's an extreme. But I do believe that there were shards around there. And I do believe that the FBI found them in digging. And I don't believe that the shards that were found were a product of the handling, of the mishandling of the three bundles. Because the videos that I've seen of the recovery clearly show multiple agents having multiple pieces of money in their palm and placing them in plasticine evidence envelopes. So these were large pieces of $20 bills from the ransom that were not part of the three bundles. They were near the bundles, but were not part of it. Interestingly enough, and this is not talked about very much, those plasticine envelopes went missing. The last time anybody ever saw them and has commented on them publicly what? was yep. the day that the videos were produced. They're not, they were not in evidence when the citizen sleuths went up to Seattle and checked on the evidence under Larry Carr. The plasticine envelopes were not there when the citizen sleuths went back when Curtis Eng was in charge of the case. And this plasticine envelopes have never been photographed by the FBI or presented in public. And they certainly were not part of the History Channel documentary. Yep. So we're, and that's why I believe. So so what about what about Fazio's testimony? Then? If he was there driving the backhoe, 
he would have seen he would have seen the agents in there and 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 pulling them out. Hey, look, you know, and he would have he would have you think he would have uh, seen that? It would have been a it would have been a big deal. FBI, if he was there driving the backhoe, the FBI guys were they're oh look look look, and everyone came around and it would it probably would have been a, a a little bit of a scene there, no? Unless the FBI told him not to talk about it, either that or it or or the Katu video, maybe they they filmed that portion. They that could have been staged. They filmed that portion afterwards and been like, hey, we we can't make this look like it was a, a plant. Definitely the shards being under there, if they would have put that in there, it would have – it definitely would have lent more back to their narrative that, hey, he didn't make it, landed in the water, and it washed up. That's how, you know, that's how there were shards there. Just I think, I think the Fazio's narrative is not correct. I think, okay. I think the shards were found – is it possible this was all staged, that the KATU videos that we have seen that are no longer publicly available, by the way, was that... Right. Why was that taken off you? What was that taken off right. YouTube? Again, talk about conspiracies. Is there a cover-up going on and they don't want, whoever they are, don't want the public to see these videos? Now, you would think if it was staged, they would want the public to continue looking at the staged, planted evidence. But maybe, but it was also being brought into question. Yeah, but in the in those videos, there are no signs of backhoes. There's no evidence that the, the backhoes had been trenching. It's my understanding that the backhoes were brought in on day two, that the shards were found on day one, and of the dig, and or okay. the, the first backhoe. You know, there were two backhoes. There's two brothers. And Richard, I believe, was the first one on the beach with a backhoe. And it may have been at the end of the day, day one. You have to remember, Al Fazio is the older brother and has done most of the talking for the family for most of the time. That's changed now. Al Fazio is in his 80s. And Richard, his younger brother, who's now in his 70s, is taking over as being the spokesperson. And Richard Fazio has spoken extensively with Eric Eulis. And they, those two have spent lots of time researching what's going on at Tina Bar. Al Fazio told me that he was not on the property when the FBI showed up on that Tuesday to go recover the money. He told me that it took him a while to get to the beach that first the FBI would not let him get on his property because they had the road blocked off. He had been at a cattle auction, so he's pulling a, a big trailer and, and yada, yada, yada. And it took him a while to get onto the property and get down to the beach and see what was going on. Now, the FBI did not really keep the Fazios apprised very much of what their agenda was because the FBI did not know if the Fazios were involved in the case. So they told them very, very little. Well, but my understanding is that the FBI just kind of showed up and said, hi, do you own this property? And it's like, yes, we do. Okay, thanks very much. And then the FBI just descended upon the beach and it's like, who the hell are you guys? All right. Now, Al Fazio told me a, a, a story that suggests that he was there at the beginning of the recovery, that he saw pieces on the surface. He saw pieces at the tide line and he told me he believes that the money washed up from the river and was deposited the night before or that morning and i've never been able to question him because i just didn't want to 
uh, risk my relationship with him by giving him a you know a, a hard question that I didn't think he was going to be was going to be able to answer, and to just leave this his commentary in question just serves my purposes. I'm not here to prove anybody right or wrong. I'm my sure. my job is to tell a good story and to tell the story as completely and fully and as honestly as I can, and the variances and differences between people's memories and their, their narratives and what they and what they tell me is stark when it comes to the money recovery at Tina Bar. Each individual agent has told me a different story and it doesn't jive. Yeah. And the Fazios have told me different stories, or Al Fazio has told me. And none of it comports with anything anybody else has said. So there's just total variations. Yeah, the whole thing is just so perplexing right there. Oh, the Tina Bar money find. It doesn't even make sense and doesn't point to anyone or anything. We can't even tell how the money got there. And we can't even agree on the condition the money was in, if there were shards. Yeah, were the rubber bands wrapped around all the bundles? And if so, how did the edges of the bundles get so worn? Wouldn't whatever action wore away the money, wouldn't that action also wear away the rubber bands? You know, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and here here's a here's a question that I have. If it was, uh, if if it was buried, would have would it have been oxygen deprived to some degree? Yeah, to some degree. Okay, because uh, I know Matt Lamadu. Another interesting thing that Lamadu brought up was that there would have been there would have been some kind of growth or some kind of stuff on there. It had to have been completely oxygen deprived for it to not for there not to be any kind of growth or anything like that on the bills which which were never found. Well the diatoms uh, that were found on oh, yeah. the bills is now a, a major source of study and Tom K once it again is. is rising to the occasion to really advance the investigation. Uh, and I just want to put a plug in for Tom K. Um, he does great work and has been doing great work ever since 2009 when he first uh, was tapped by Larry Carter head up the Citizen Sleuths and Larry Carr was, was many things to many people. Um, Larry Carr, in many ways, I found him to be a bully and a jerk and an asshole. Um, but he also did a lot of good things for the FBI and for the American public and in the D.B. Cooper investigation, primarily by forming and supporting the citizen sleuths and also putting all of this out in the public domain on the Drop Zone chat room. The fact that Larry talked a lot on the drop zone is fantastic. But dealing with, but dealing with him one on one as a journalist it was one of the toughest interviews I've ever took in my had in my life. Sure, he was adversarial, confrontational. Just for twenty minutes, he was just oh. Yep, and I, I know Larry's been lately. He's uh, had a little bit of a Facebook presence. Um, uh, he he added me as a friend on Facebook and. Um, he commented on uh, Eric Eulis, one of his posts about DB Cooper. Uh, so Larry's still, uh, Larry's still interested. Larry's still interested. I'm really hoping to have him. Please, on the show. Darren. Yeah, yeah, you know, because he's definitely not Larry. Larry Carr is definitely not talking to me. So yeah, yeah, he added me as a Facebook friend. He commented on Eulis's post. Um, Yikes! I know he's friends with Eulis now on Facebook as well. If he, if he came on the vortex, that, that that would be great. But like what you said, Bruce, what what, what he did to advance his case is absolutely uh, it's invaluable. It was absolutely it's pivotal. It was, it, yeah, and, it was pivotal. Yeah, and it, and it shows you people that you really don't like, 
can also do very good work. <laughs> you know, it's one of, it's <laughs> yeah. one of those existential you know, qualities of, of life. It's like, wow, okay. I'll be curious to see if the diatoms can can point to a specific time the money went in the mm. water. Yeah, and, and also <laughs> Ulysses Ulysses tests test let's test out his theory that if the high water if the high water uh times which do coincide with uh which do add up where the high water tide times were um, if that if that's going to drench the bills enough to for to get the dianums inside, and not just not just on the outside of the bills, but actually inside of the stacks where probably the bills would have came from, or if not, it would have all come from the outside, right? Yeah, that's one of the perplexities. It, it, it's my understanding that diatoms are, are quite fragile, so they wouldn't travel through the sand. And right. how did the diatoms get between the bills? So the bill inside of, inside of the stack. Inside I can understand stack, if there yeah. was some. On, yeah, so I yeah. can understand if there was some on the outer layer on the outer layer bills. Right, but right. So this, this what are the chances three three seven sevens bill was actually one of those? Probably one of the couple ones that were uh, out on the bottom or end of top or end of or bottom of the stack. Nah, that would be interesting. That'd be, and I. Unfortunately, I don't think Brian Ingram and the auction company that he sold everything to, uh, his share of the bills, um, would rec- would record yeah, exactly that's, that's, what stack and yeah. where on the stack each bill came from. That would have been good information. There's so much missing forensic evidence. How come How come the FBI did not photograph the parachutes at, the, at SeaTac Airport on the night of the skyjacking so that we would have some kind of documented record of what was actually given to D.B. Cooper. How come the money wasn't photographed? How come these individuals weren't photographed? Uh, who exactly delivered the money? You know, we're told it was an FAA agent, and then we're told it's a homicide a homicide detective in plain detective, I'm, I'm hearing all these, yeah, I'm, he- I'm hearing all these different things. You know, and from what uh, Lauren Peterson said, it was just one of those these FBI kids that were working that day, and they just send them up there. Didn't have to sign for it, didn't have to do anything, and just came back and brought it. So it's. I'll have to re-listen to that because one of the passengers told me, um, again, this is part of a conspiracy that the story that Tina has put out uh, is not true. That Tina did not leave the airplane, go down the stair air stairs and retrieve the money bag and bring it back up into the plane that did not yes happen, i know according to the passengers that i've spoken to and one passenger in fact was the assistant u.s district attorney for uh seattle the seattle region washington state and he said mm-hmm. it was an fbi agent that brought the money on board and he says because i knew that yeah. his name is john and i knew him from the courts and tina met al lee uh and the agent uh who brought the money bag on board and that Tina brought the money down the aisle. And I talked to a number of passengers who told me that they saw money in the bag and they figured, well, something's up. Maybe there's a skyjacking going on. Um, and that John, the FBI agent walked down the aisle way. Now, Larry Feingold was the U S district attorney and he was sitting in row six. And when John came to him, he stopped and he says, um, there's a skyjacking in progress. The guy's on the plane. I'll get back to you later and tell you more. Um, and what happened next, I don't know. But something happened and that FBI agent was turned around. He apparently never spoke again with Larry Feingold or any of the other passengers. 
It is my belief that Alice Hancock, the lead flight attendant, walked up to the agent and said, that's enough, buddy. You know, you want to have a shootout with, with some bad boys, you're going to have to do it on somebody else's airplane, not on my time, not on my shift. Right. And that, that actually jives with um, that actually jives with um, uh, with the, with the NWO freight guy, uh, his uh, his story where he was like that um, when they knew he said when they knew that that D.B. Cooper was in the laboratory, he's like the, F, the FBI wanted to go underneath and and start shooting up in the laboratory. And, um, and the, um, the, the NWO, the NWO guy got on the line. He's like, he's like, no, you're not putting any holes in my airplane. And that's how that whole, not putting any holes in my airplane thing, uh, c- kind of came from because when they knew he was in the laboratory, they wanted to go underneath and just start shooting up in there. Well, that certainly comports with the whole notion that the FBI is not some kind of monolithic culture and one kind of tribal one mindset. There are different elements within the FBI and some of them are downright cowboys and they like gun battles. And, you know, I'm sure that there were FBI agents thinking about, yeah, let's shoot up through the, the lavatory and try to get the guy uh, on the plane and put in. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That it makes sense. That's why I believe Lauren Peterson and he, even Lauren Peterson's his description, his descriptions of the when he was in freight. Lauren Peterson said the guys were in here, um, and they were like they were all gung ho ready to go. They're like whoop, they're like whoop de doo, whoop de doo. They were they were like just let's let's shoot let's shoot let's shoot them up. This is gonna be a great night. Like they were all just gung ho ready to do this. Yeah. Ready to get into a gun battle. The the mindset the of and the culture of the FBI when it comes to skyjacking in 1971. There's a great book on it called uh, "The Skies Belong to Us: The Golden Age of Skyjacking," um, and it really touches into how the FBI responded to skyjackings and what the airlines thought of the FBI response and how the the airlines on occasion, would conspire with the skyjacker against the FBI to make sure there wasn't a gun battle. Um, right. And uh, so to preserve lives. And I highly recommend the book. It's by Brendan Kiernan, who is a friend, by the way, and a neighbor of Jeffrey Gray. So, mm. yeah. I'll have to check that out, Bruce. I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Great book. I'll add it to my list. My collection of D.B. Cooper books. The skies belong. The skies belong to us, by Brendan Kiernan. I think that I think that the FBI wanted wanted to wanted to get their man, yeah. and at the expense of the aircraft. Yeah. And NWO wanted their airplane to fly the next day. They didn't want their their air, aircraft to be a, a casualty of this thing because then they're out of freaking airplane. Right. And they certainly and, didn't. Want- and they're possibly they're possibly playing a ransom out. So not only that, they're. they're they're on the hook for two hundred thousand. Well, most of it was carried by their insurance company, but they, they would have been on the hook for that, and then they might have not had an airplane to fly the next day and keep in operation. Yeah, or even worse, they'd have a dead passenger, and they'd be paying up more than two hundred thousand dollars in liability claims to to the families. You know, exactly. Or a dead pilot. You know, and and uh, yeah, I think yeah. I think it's it's fair to mention at this point that two or three weeks before the DB Cooper skyjacking, there was the infamous 50, uh, fifty-eight November incident. Where the FBI decided to go, go tough guy, and uh, there was a small commuter plane uh, that was hijacked out of Nashville and landed in Jacksonville, Florida, to refuel, in route to go to Nassau, Bahamas, 
and the FBI intercepted the refueling and shot out the tires and refused, uh, and nothing less than a, a total surrender from the Skyjacker. And he said, oh, yeah, and he shot himself, yeah. and he shot his hostage, and he shot the pilot. Uh, and so it's my understanding that this is the only instance where the FBI has been successfully sued for wrongful death by the family of the hostage. And D.B. Cooper researcher Bill Rollins in New Hampshire has written a book on this, yeah. and he claimed Bill, our boy. Bill uh, claims that yep. the I was going to bring it up. Father of the dead hostage, uh, I think his name is Lackich. Yeah, so Joe Lackich is in, is in fact the guy who did the D.B. Cooper skyjacking as a revenge. You know, you kill my girl, I'll get uh, now. I'll show you. I don't think so. I don't think I don't think Bill is correct on that. But Bill has got a wonderful imagination, and I again, I, for those who haven't read his book, I forget the title of his book. But uh, it's a wonderful, plausible scenario about how D.B. Cooper could have gotten into town, done the jump, got away, um, you know, using boats and things like that. It's, it's fanciful, but plausible. And the fact that Bill Rollins is emotional. Have you have you you've interviewed him, right, Darren? Yes. OK. Yeah. And we we, we hung out with Bill at, at CooperCon pretty much the whole time. I mean, uh, right, Darren? Yeah. Did he weep during his podcast with you, Darren? I'm not sure if he did on the podcast, but probably. Yeah, because Bill is very emotionally involved. He cries as much as I do. Uh, when, I start, yeah. when I start talking about Tina or uh, McCoy and what McCoy did in Vietnam with the Arvin soldiers, like I'm emotional now. Yeah. There are certain aspects to this case that really touch, really touch me, and Bill, and I love Bill for that. I disagree with his his assessments and analysis and conclusions, but I think he tells a great story. Yeah, he made an interesting point to me about at uh, at Victor Twenty Three, the brewery after the party. He said he it felt weird to him that everyone was celebrating this and having a good time when to him it's it's a sad thing. That's an interesting point, yeah. Yeah, he's very passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Why don't you like Joe Lackich as a suspect? I don't think Joe had enough of the skill sets. I don't think a grieving father would do this. Could a grieving father do this? Yes. Is it possible? Yes. But if my daughter had just been killed and I thought the FBI was responsible, even if only indirectly, I'd be taking care of other kinds of stuff in my family. I'd be taking care of my family and myself. Yeah, I, I agree. And just just how uh, Bill's got so emotional, um, and he, it, it wasn't even his. It wasn't even his daughter or whoever that was killed. Yeah. Um, how would how would Lackage be so? How would Lackage be so cool, calm, and collected? How DB Cooper was was described to be um you would think do you think the emotion i don't think he would just be so sinister and just be so cool calm collected trying to trying just to just just trying to do your mission it was more like more like a mission you're just trying to complete your complete your plan kind of thing whereas lackage i think he would have been too emote he would have been too emotional to be so cool 
so be to be so cool. I mean, we got Bill crying about it, and he wasn't even him. And Lakich is, is moral, is a moral guy kind of guy. And why would he want to kill or be willing to kill other people's daughters because his daughter was killed? I, Absolutely. I, I don't. I I don't see Joe Lakich as a guy allowing that kind of mental and emotional psychological disconnect to exist in his own psyche. <clears throat> I think he very much could identify with other fathers. Yeah. As, as far as the grudge thing goes. Yeah. That's about it. All I, all I give, all I give, uh, all I give him is grudge. Yeah. And why, why do it in Portland and Seattle? Yeah. I give him grudge and, um, um, he, he did um, – Bill did give a lot of good stuff as far as how to match the type articles. Um, I think bes- besides me, I mean the, the, you, can, you, can, you can match the, the particles, some of the particles, I guess, to, to the tie. Um, but be, be, besides that and grudge, that's, that's really all I can, uh, I can give to the guy. Yeah. Speaking of Joe Lakich and grudges, um, I've recently have finished watching the Netflix episodes on Justified, which is a six-season episode of of life as a U.S. Marshal in the coal country of Harlan County, Kentucky. <clears throat> and I would think the best place to do a D.B. Cooper skyjacking, to jump, would be to jump out over Appalachia. Because the majority of people, based on at least the TV show Justified, the majority of people that live in the woods in in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia hate the feds and band together. So anybody anybody who's on the run from the FBI is going to be considered a welcomed hero. It's going to be aerial on steroids. So I don't think you have to worry about an extraction. If you land in Harlan County, you don't have to worry about an extraction team. You just got to make friends. Right. You got to make friends with the ruling family who's running the particular holla that you that you landed in. Yeah. Plus, plus when you walk into a cabin, there's going to be some good moonshine to celebrate your jump. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So you know, the Southwest Washington was not the prime territory for skyjacking. <laughs> so if anybody's contemplating it, I highly recommend. Um, you know, definitely watching Justified so you can get some of the. Eastern Kentucky lingo and get a feel for the culture and know what you're jumping into and who's going to be greeting you and uh, slapping you on the back when you, you know, drag your 200 grand out of the woods. I think that's a good place to wrap it up with Bruce Smith recommending that if you skyjack a plane, jump out in the Appalachian mountains. That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right, Bruce, you want to tell people where they can find you? Well, you can find me most easily uh, in my book. Um, I'm the author of D.B. Cooper and the FBI, a case study of America's only unsolved skyjacking. It's available at Amazon. Highly recommended on this show, often. Thank you. Thank you. You can buy it as in digital form for 10 bucks, or you can get the paper copy for 25 If you'd like me to send you a copy, and I can write, write some notes and sign it and, you know, make it a treasured part of your bookshelf. I'm happy to do that. And um, I'm in Eatonville, Washington. And the best place to find me is on the Mountain News. If you want to read everything that I ever write about D.B. Cooper, you can read it in its raw form at the Mountain News WA, which is W-A for Washington, dot net. And I've been writing the Mountain News for the last 10 years. 
It's an online news magazine. And a great place to argue about D.B. Cooper. Ah, my, I tell you. It's kind of dying down now. Most people are arguing in other places. but Yeah, it did, Bruce. I, I noticed that. It, it, everything's kind of... Well, you haven't, you haven't posted as much... Uh, as many DB Cooper posts uh, as, as kind of you were before, but uh... yeah, and, and there's two reasons for that. One is I'm writing about the COVID epidemic, and yeah, I, I know the COVID nineteen. There's yeah, my own my own personal that. experiences. There's lots of journalists writing about the big picture. I'm writing about the small picture, like what it's mm-hmm. like what it's like to keep waiting day after day after day for my twelve hundred bucks from Trump. Um, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and what's it like to go shopping down at the local grocery store and, you know, and when the hell am I ever going to get any toilet paper for price sakes? Um, <laughs> you know, um, so the nitty gritty of, of, of a personal life, um, and what I do for fun, uh, and for me, uh, what gets me through the day is, is if I'm not talking DB Cooper with you guys, and this has been a wonderful afternoon, uh, I'm working out in the garden and the garden has never looked better. So uh, that's that's me in, in the short short form. That's awesome, Bruce. And your person your personal stories too. My personal favorite is the one about the uh, about the bunt when you hit the home run. And ah, the bunting yes, afterwards. yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that's that, that story really resonates with me <laughs> so much. And I think I have all your out of all besides your DB Cooper stuff, which I love. Um, that that story with me is is is. is is my is my favorite and i and i appreciate it and i appreciate you sharing your other non-cooper related stories and stuff like that because i i i think it's all awesome yeah and 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 and, and nikki and I, I share this with you and everyone else and darren if you have any stories that you would like to tell i mean the mountain news please consider the mountain news to be a platform that you can access um send me something to, got an idea or whatever if you're writing an essay whether it's a personal narrative of what uh, being in quarantine is like for you or an essay about, you know, Hey, Nikki, I'm waiting for you to write about that guy in Elsinore. We haven't even talked about Elsinore today yet. You know, what's going on? Oh yeah. So if we can, we, we can throw that in real quick, Darren, I know, I know you're trying to, Oh, the Lyle Cameron. I know you're trying to wrap it up. So like, maybe Bruce, you can help me out with this because I, I'm trying to do a whole different thing just about the life of Lyle Cameron, because Lyle Cameron to me is just so interesting. Um, I've, I, I become friends with it. I become friends with his, with his family. Um, and, and the guy, the only survivor of his plane, plane crash under mysterious circumstances in Honduras. And I, I find that whole, that whole Lyle Cameron angle that I've just kind of gotten sidetracked into from, from Cooper, just, just so very good. And it's so very interesting. So very fascinating. Um, so to kind of give the podcast a little bit of co- context here. So, in um in one of the the FBI releases i think it was last last year maybe the year before but in one of the one of the 302s that came out there was a report in Lake Elsinore where i actually re- reside in now of uh august of 71 this guy shows up at Lake Elsinore drop zone here and he's asking questions about how to jump out of the plane he was smoking Riley cigarettes and he was wearing uh he was he was wearing some, uh I forgot what kind of boots the name for the boots were was it Cochrane Cochrane boots yeah he was wearing Cochrane boots he was he was smoking Riley's uh, match match the description and he was jumping uh, he was at Lake Elsinore asking questions uh, to the guys there how to jump out of a jet 
Uh, from my understanding, he never actually jumped there or anything like that. He just kind of popped in, asked some questions, and then he was out of there. Um, but it actually came up in the 302s. Um, and the guy was smoking Raleigh's match encryption. And uh, the, the name was redacted if we made the report. But I, um, through my infiltration into the skydiving community, especially being here in Elsinore, kind of gave me a little bit of in. The guy that actually reported that was Lyle Hazen Cameron. And I did some digging into Lyle Hazen Cameron. And the guy just has – he was a pioneer skydiving. He started the first uh, – skydiving kind of uh, TV show documentary uh, start started parachutes magazine um, and he's I, I talked to his family he, his family believes he was in the, he was a CIA uh, he was a CIA contractor he worked for the CIA um, and he was the one that made this report to the to the FBI that he, he, he saw this he he encountered this guy here in August of 71. And he made that report to the FBI. Um, and I started digging into, into Lyle Hayes and Cameron. And I, I've been in contact with his family. And I'm trying to kind of help them now. It's, I kind of got sucked down this rabbit hole. And I'm trying to help them now uh, to, for them because they believe that his death was not an accident. He was involved in the mysterious plane crash in, in Honduras, uh, I believe, in 1993. And his family believes that there was foul play involved. And um, from talking to the only survivor and doing my own research, I believe I believe there was foul play, um, and I believe Lyle Cameron was a CIA asset um, to to some degree. Um, so the fact that Lyle Cameron made this report to the FBI is very interesting to me, um, and points to the fact of hey, if you wanted to get, to do a little bit of homework and learn about the skydiving aspect, especially if you're somebody in World War II, someone that if, if it's a guy that hasn't jumped in a while and you wanted to kind of get some some tips and some expertise onto how to jump out of a jet, which is what he came there on Elsinore asking about, if you were in the government circles, if you had CIA connections, you would have been told to go to see Lyle Hayes and Cameron. So one of the interesting things I found about Lyle, if you if you type him on Google, you just type Lyle Cameron FBI Vault, you can see all of his files up there. And one of the the two uh, Jack Ruby before he assassinated John F. Kennedy, one of the last two calls he made was to Lyle Hayes and Cameron. So Ruby's out on the East Coast. He's a strip strip club owner and all of this. What uh, they they travel. They're in completely different coasts. They travel in totally different circles. So what is what is Jack Ruby doing? Calling Lyle Hayes and Cameron. What is he doing? Calling calling him right before he right before he offs Lee Har- Harvey Arzwalt. Getting the pep talk. Definitely a shady yeah. character. Yeah. You're you're on to something, Nikki. So keep on digging. I w- I will for sure. Bruce. Okay, and I'm glad you. I'm glad. So you're going to make a podcast uh, with Darren on this. You guys you guys going to put something together here. Um, I, I, I want to do something separate on, on, on Lyle for sure. Um, like I said, I've been, I've been in contact with the only survivor of that plane crash and, uh, and, and the family. And I, I'm trying to, right now I'm trying to get, uh, Lyle Hazen Cameron's son to talk to, uh, to talk to the only survivor uh, the guy's been, 
he's given me some information, but he's he's been a little shady. A lot of stuff doesn't out there. That's that's for another time. I'm not I'm not going to get into that. But um, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't add up there, and a lot of just weird just a lot of weird things. And the family doesn't have closure because they don't believe that Lyle that Lyle uh, actually that Lyle actually died because of a storm that they were flying through there in Honduras. And there's something more to the story there. And and after doing my own research, I believe that as well. Um, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother avenue. But um, but yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what you dig up with that. Yeah, I got Nikki. I got a lot of Got a lot of stuff oh. in there. I'm sure you do. That is yeah. wild. Yeah. But if, if people want to get a hold of you and uh, or if they have info on Lyle Cameron, where can people find you at? Yeah, you can. Um, I'm on the I'm on the Cooper forum, uh, Nikki B two three three. You can email me at nbnikkib two three three at gmail dot com. Um, I'm working with uh, I'm working with a talented filmmaker out here in San Diego. On a DB Cooper documentary right now, I got a. I'm. I still got my. I still got my books in the works, but I'm also working on a documentary which I want to actually want to put off for, put up first because I think the whole true crime documentary right now. That's that's what's hot. Um, you guys see what's what's going on with Tiger King and and other and other stuff like that that's just been uh, just been buzzing. Um. So uh, uh, Dan LaFleek's actually the. Uh, the filmmaker that I'm working with out here in San Diego. And uh, we've got a tentative title right now, uh, Cooperland. And um, that's, that's what my focus is on right now. And uh, hope to have you, I'm going to approach you, Darren. Hopefully I get, I can get you on, get you on the dock and uh, possibly get you on like as a consultant executive producer or something like that. And of course we got to have Bruce on the mayor of Cooperville and, uh, Right now with this whole COVID stuff that's going on, he's kind of on pause. But I've just been just kind of been brainstorming ideas with Dan, and D- Dan's Dan's all in on this. Uh, he's working on one other documentary right now on the uh, on a local case out here, which was the uh, there was a couple killings out uh, out in the state beach in San Diego that that D- Dan's working on another documentary on. But he's uh, he's invested. In, I got him. I got him sucked in the vortex now. So we've been brainstorming ideas and stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Um, and hopefully we can start filming after this whole thing is over. Yeah. That's badass. We definitely need a good DB Cooper documentary or show. Yeah. You know, and I'm trying to, to get into the, you know, so I'm not, you know, I don't have history channel or have any of these big guys that just kind of want, that just kind of, you know, want the, I want to go into all the, all the more inner stuff, and the deeper stuff that's that that goes into this case because there there's there's just so much um and I want to really go into the inner the inner sanctums of the of the Cooper vortex with with my documentary and and you know the the character you know all of all of the suspect all the suspect champions that you got that you've had on the show Darren I mean they you know that whole aspect and just just kind of cover a more kind of broad range of everything well hell yeah i look forward to it and and darren i think what you're doing here this podcast i think is going to be the nature of how information is shared at least in the near term perhaps for the next year or two 
I don't think we're going to be able to produce documentaries or TV shows or any kind of movies in the traditional fashion of large crews, uh, multiple sets, uh, on location shoots, no. and things like that. Until and it's going to take a long until until we're we're all safe and everyone feels secure. And that's going to take a lot of testing. A lot of stuff is going to have to be developed between now and then, whether it's the testing and uh, getting antibodies or a vaccine or something like that. I don't see us returning to, um, you know, typical documentaries. I was I was supposed to be uh, in a D.B. Cooper documentary shoot for um, some new series on the History Channel last month that got canceled. I know Eric is involved in a D.B. Uh, Cooper documentary. Uh, a major one, again, for another aspect of the History Channel. Uh, and he was supposed to be part of uh, the History Channel CooperCon uh, last week, and that got canceled. So all these major projects are being canceled, and I don't know when they're going to be able to be resumed. So, you know, and Darren, we've gone two and a half hours uh, today, so I think you're going to have to break this up into two or three episodes at least. Nah, I like long podcasts. <laughs> no, that, well, that's typical of me and Darren. Uh, we got a two-parter. Uh, I have another two-parter. Uh, they're tough. Oh, my God. Because uh, I listened to you and Ben talk about suspects. How long did that go? That went a long time yeah. also. I think that was like two you and know, a half well, I hours. Had to, I had to skip around, you know. We didn't even talk about Sheridan Peterson. Maybe we'll, you'll save that. Have you talked to Eric? Have you done a podcast with Eric on Sheridan Peterson? Oh yeah, Eric's been Eric's been on. Yep. Yeah, Eric's been on the show three times. He has he holds Whoa. the record. Although Nikki, uh, if you count your episode as two episodes, this would be your third appearance right. as well. If, if we split this up in, if we split this one up in two, well, then got a, I got a four. Uh, I got a four parter. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I really uh, appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thank you. Yeah, my, my pleasure, too. Great to be on again, Darren, and great to be alongside the, the mayor of Cooperville, Bruce, Bruce A. Smith. Glad to have you. Go find Bruce and Nikki online and see what they're up to. You'll find links to the Mountain News and Nikki's social media in the show notes. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or someone you think we should have on the show? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Thank you to Nikki Broughton and Bruce Smith, who have truly become some of my most cherished friends. Thank you to Russell Colbert who has also become one of my most cherished friends. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.